is standing above it. Cactus Jack is getting himself in position. Chainsaw is down in the dumpster. And oh, no! Good grief! Right in the trash, right in the garbage, but more specifically, right on Chainsaw Charlie. The referee trying to figure out what's going on. Oh, oh no. There's Road Dog and, and Billy Gunn, the new age outlaws, with their adversaries in that dumpster. They're, they're locking they're locking the dumpster shut, JR. The WWF Tag Team Champions who have had a war, as we saw here last week with Cactus Jack and Chainsaw in tag team action, are tying the lid shut of that dumpster. You gotta wonder what the intentions of these guys are. Maybe they're gonna push it down the ramp. The New Age Outlaws wanna push that dumpster down the ramp. Wait a minute. No. Well, they certainly have Cactus and Chainsaw in a precarious position. Both of them are inside that dumpster, and it is sealed shut. Wait a minute. I don't like the looks of this at all. They were surveying the scene. Road Dog and Billy. Billy, go. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Oh, my God. Don't you dare do that. Hello and welcome to the Wrestling 20 Years Ago podcast, where we are going back in the time machine to February of 1998 to bring you your WWF coverage, including the No Way Out of Texas in Your House pay-per-view. Three volumes for you this month. Uh, volume one is EC, uh, sorry, WCW, uh, looking at Super Brawl. This episode will be volume two, and volume three rounds off the month with your ECW coverage looking at Cyberslam. Uh, joining me for this episode, we have firstly Eric Landstrom. How, Eric, how are you doing? Chris, how are you today? Yes, very well. Uh, and also joining us, we have Dan Welling. Dan, how, how are you doing? Very well. Good evening to you, sirs. Uh, not too bad. It's freezing, but what can be done? Hey, hey. Um, Eric, back over to you. Would you kindly kick us off uh, with the news for the month? Yes, sir. Mike Tyson split from Don King, his controversial longtime manager, ironically due to Tyson's association with the WWF. Word as Tyson became suspicious after WWF officials told Tyson that King collected $300,000 for the use of Tyson's likeness, money which Tyson's wife, of all people, believed belonged to Tyson. Tyson is nearly broke despite earning $112 million in just his last six fights, half of which is believed to have gone directly into King's pocket. King and Tyson were also seen scuffling in a hotel lobby, though Tyson denied the incident. Uh, even still, it's not believed Tyson's WrestleMania status is in doubt. And King was not present at the February 5th WrestleMania press conference in Manhattan. Vince McMahon announced Tyson would be an outside-the-ring enforcer for the scheduled Austin Michaels main event. More than 100 reporters from all over the world attended the press conference, with WWF articles, good and bad, popping up in mainstream news outlets in the days following. If WWF wants to be in the news, its affiliation with Tyson appears to be working. WWF may also be trying to leverage the huge media coverage and Tyson's split with King into a three-show deal with Tyson. The WrestleMania main event may be in jeopardy, though, due to another Shawn Michaels injury on the eve of giving up a title. Michaels was first injured in last month's casket match against The Undertaker 
when he took a bump over the top rope onto the ringside casket. Michael suffered two herniated discs in his lower back, which worsened in training the week of No Way Out. Of course, Michael's history of well-timed injuries before high-profile jobs puts a suspicious cloud over this whole situation. Michael's injury is also suspicious, timing-wise that it comes right as Michael's and Owen Hart were due to headline two Canadian house shows, though that just appears to be a simple cruel coincidence. If Michael's is not fully cleared for Mania, alternatives include DX versus Austin and Tyson, or Austin versus Tyson one-on-one, with the latter felt to be a long shot. The WrestleMania undercard is coming together too. Matches reportedly set for March 29th include The Undertaker versus Kane, The New Age Outlaws versus Cactus Jack and Chainsaw Charlie, Owen Hart versus Hunter Hearst Helmsley, Rocky Maivere versus Ken Shenrock, Taka Michinoku versus Aguila, Goldust and Luna versus Mero and Sable, and a 30-man tag team battle royal. But whether 15 million U.S. homes see Mania on March 29th is up in the air. TCI, one of the largest pay-per-view carriers in the U.S., threatened to pull WrestleMania from its schedule until it is fully assured what Tyson's role will be. As Of course, as boxing is the largest producer of pay-per-view revenue in the U.S. by a wide margin, it's likely TCI is trying to appease its boxing overlords, who are clearly on the outs with Tyson. It's widely believed WWF and TCI will come to an agreement in advance of the show. And... In the story that will never die, Vince McMahon appeared on a Canadian talk show with no restrictions on questions the host, Michael Landsberg, could ask. Of course, the discussion focused on Bret Hart. McMahon accused Bret of being an unreasonable and ungrateful employee. McMahon called Bret a pain in the ass, a locker room distraction, and a crybaby, but he did admit Bret sure can punch. Most notably, though, McMahon admitted publicly for the first time that he did lie to Brett about the finish of the match, justifying his actions by claiming he needed to make sure Brett didn't no-show altogether. And get this, Vince took the time to bury, of all people, Bruno San Martino during that same interview. No Way Out of Texas occurred on February the 15th in Houston, with about 16,000 in attendance where the main event eight-man tag featured one of the worst surprises in memory. The top of the card saw Ken Shamrock, Ahmed Johnson and the DOA defeat the Nation of Domination in the War of Attrition, which was basically a no-DQ tag match. Kane defeated Vader, and Stone Cold Steve Austin, Chainsaw Charlie, Cactus Jack and Owen Hart defeat Triple H, the New Age Outlaws, and the surprise replacement for Shawn Michaels, the wrestling 20 years ago podcast MVP, Salvia Vega, in a no-DQ tag match. The show also featured wins for the Headbangers, Takamich Noku, the Godwins, and Bradshaw. Wrapping up, former Intercontinental Champion Ahmed Johnson was released on February the 23rd after refusing to job to Kurgan and no show of a TV taping. The WWF was said to be more than happy with the release of the often injured and moody Johnson. And finally, we should mention that Louis Piccoli, who completed in the WWF as Raj Radford, died on February the 15th at the age of just 27. Our WCW show this month will have full coverage of this terrible news. And finally, to uh, wrap up the news uh, segment for the month, we have the ratings. Um, A good month for WCW, which saw them continue their dominance. February 2nd edition of Nitro did a 4.9 to Raw's 3.5. On the 9th of February, both shows dropped slightly. Raw to a 3.2, Nitro to a 4.6. 
Uh, on the 16th of the month, Nitro, Nitro ran unopposed and drew a 5.1 rating. And the month closed off with Raw garnering a 3.2, holding steady, and WCW dropping to a 4.6. Um, so with the news there, there's plenty to discuss uh, coming off the news. And uh, the majority of it has to be noted, not really necessarily related to WWF TV. Quite a quiet month as far as uh, TV, uh, noteworthy angles and stuff from TV goes. But we'll touch on a couple later in the show. Dan, I'll come to you first. Out of all the big stories of the month, I suppose, with like, Tyson and Michaels and Vince on the podcast in the story that will never die and all of that. What stands out to you as sort of some of the more important aspects of, of the news flump? Uh, well, I've got to say that probably Shawn Michaels is um, um, once bitten, twice shy. You fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. Um, injury storylines probably is going to be the main one. I mean, it's all well and good having Mike Tyson coming in to, to sell your pay-per-view, but if you've got no main events to really draw the spectators in, then it's all could be well for nothing because this this whole WrestleMania card seems to be built on the passing of the torch into a new era of Austin, like formally becoming the guy ahead of of, of Michaels, who was the symbol of this of the era, kind of between 1994 and 1997, um, and he's going to be injured again. You know, and that's a simple thing. This has happened so many times that now that you do feel that, you know, it's, if, even if he was seriously injured and he genuinely, genuinely couldn't go out there and wrestle, that the whole wrestling industry still wouldn't believe him because he's done this so many times. And the fact that it is a back injury, which is potentially career-threatening if it is true. But again, like, I am incredibly spectacle, you know, incredibly... Um, I don't know what the word is for it. Kind of just like not not impressed, not not convinced. Just this is just this just seems like another ploy to have tight to have Michaels just either drop the belt before going out there or going out there and getting beaten reasonably quickly or you know not putting on the kind of clean job that he needs to put on to have put Austin really as the focal point of the promotion going forward. Um, if he does go out there and he do, and he appears right as rain, that goes against him. If he does drop the belt without going into actually have a match with um, Austin, not only does that throw up the whole um, main event question into the into the mix, but also does it mean that the WWF just don't put any faith in Michaels going forward? And if the worst case, if it is completely true and he is really struggling with a bad back, how much of a loss is this going to be to the WWF? You know, in terms of losing one of its top stars um, through injury, when the top of the main roster is already thin because you've lost Bret Hart, you know. Um, so yeah, in the ways, it's it's absolutely terrible timing for the for the federation because you know they're losing the best main event worker to a potential injury or a potential PR disaster that he was just never another fake out. But in the ways, it is you know. If they didn't have Mike Tyson there as a backup to draw in casual fans, this could have been even more disastrous. But yeah, we'll have to wait and see for what's going to happen in March time. But the fact that he wasn't able to wrestle in the main event, uh, a pay-per-view, is potentially not good news. But hey, hey, it's Shawn Michaels. Who knows? Um, Eric, same question to you, really. Any more on uh, Michaels being the boy who cried wolf or any other topics that we covered in the uh, news? 
Well, you know, from reading the reports this month, it, it does sound like this one, if the other ones weren't legit, that this one at least has some legitimacy. Uh, and that that's really too bad, both because Michaels has tried to hoodwink everybody before. And we saw it just a year ago. I mean, I think it was nearly on the one-year anniversary of the Lost My Smile uh, speech was when this, this news came out that Michaels wasn't going to be competing uh, at the No Way Out pay-per-view. And that potentially that his WrestleMania status could be in jeopardy. Now, fortunately, it sounds like they're going to do everything they can to get Michaels out there and, and do the job. But everything else that happens between now and uh, 8 o'clock Pacific time on March 29th, when that show goes off the air, uh, seems to be up in the air. And, that, and that's got to be a really uneasy feeling, especially when you're also trying to balance this, this newfound uh, more mainstream media coverage with Mike Tyson. And now you're trying to also deal with a guy who's just fired his longtime uh, manager and associate and Don King. There are a lot of uh, balls up in the air to be juggled right now. It, if WWF can pull this off with everything that's going on behind the scenes and, and fair to them, they've kind of kept steady waters on screen by using raw to promote the underneath matches at, WrestleMania. I think a couple of the shows this month featured Owen Hart, Mark Merrow, Gold Dust, some of those underneath guys um, in the main event spot to kind of make every match at WrestleMania seem important. Everybody knows what the main event is, so you don't need to take much time on Raw to promote that. Um, but behind the scenes, man, these are not steady waters. And whether we even get to Michaels laying down for Austin at WrestleMania uh, seems at least not as certain as it was a couple of weeks ago and how they're going to get there and put on something that's even passable for a main event spot that doesn't reek of a schmoz or Michael's trying to get out of there as quick as possible. That's going to be the interesting thing. So uh, it's just, it's, this is the, this is the, the, the price of trying to reach and take risks to increase your popularity. And I, I hope they get to it because Michael's and Austin could probably put on a hell of a main event uh, but it doesn't sound like Michaels is going to be 100% kind of no matter what they do. So wait and see, I guess. I mean, things with Austin as well, like um, as far back as like December, he he's having sort of non-matches, like he's not working on TV. At the pay-per-view, his involvement in the tag match was minimal, really. Like he came in at the end and he, he doesn't he doesn't take any bumps and he's not he's not 100% like obviously stemming back from the uh, injury of Owen Hart and it's they've got such an important show coming up with Tyson garnering so much new, new casual widespread attendance for the WWF that it's really risky territory and you you do wonder will, will they be able to get Michaels every time Michaels cuts a promo whether it's on TV or at the risk of people from all over the world watching, he reiterates he does not lay down for anyone. And that is certainly like more than a catchphrase in the past for Michaels, regardless of how severe this injury is. And like, you hope it's not. And like, it, it seems weird to say you almost hope that, uh, sure Michaels is trying to pull another fast one because they, they kind of need him at the top of the card as, as that. The, the best worker they have, really. And uh, it'll be interesting to see if all the dominoes do fall into place because this could be spectacular for the WWF or it could be a spectacular disaster. So we'll have to see how that all plays out. 
Being the king, I'm used to being followed by newsmen and and press people, but never in my life have I seen as many cameramen, newsmen, press people as I have at that press conference. It had to be the world's biggest, at least the biggest press conference ever in New York City. Let's take you back to Thursday. It should be an extravaganza beyond extravaganzas. WrestleMania 14. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Jim Ross, and I want to welcome you to the WrestleMania 14 press conference. Television crews, radio stations, and newspapers worldwide awaited the announcement of the main event at WrestleMania 14, as well as what role the baddest man on the planet, Mike Tyson, would play at the biggest sports entertainment event of the year. Shawn Michaels defends the World Wrestling Federation title at WrestleMania against the number one contender, Stone Cold Steve Austin. I would like to announce that Mike Tyson, as far as his role at WrestleMania is concerned, after much deliberation, uh, Mike Tyson will be, in effect, the enforcer. He will be on the outside of the ring in somewhat of a guest referee capacity. If you don't know, you should know. My name is Stone Cold Steve Austin, and I've been busting my ass for eight years to get this opportunity to wrestle for the WWF title at a WrestleMania. So, Shawn Michaels, you can bet your last dollar that I take this match more serious than any match I've ever had in my life. Professionally, I think you're one of the greatest wrestlers to ever step in a ring. Personally, I think you're a big piece of trash. Steve Austin, in my opinion, is the Latrell Sprewell of the World Wrestling Federation, and Vince McMahon is P.J. Carlissimo. I do not lay down. I repeat, I do not lay down for absolutely anybody. Mike Tyson is the hottest thing in sports. No question about that. So Mike, involved with the World Wrestling Federation, brings the attention and the focal point to the WWF. And I'm just interested in basically in just getting involved with WWF. That's my life as of now. What attracted you to the WWF? Um, probably um, Bruno Salmatino, the Valiant Brothers, because Bruno Salmatino more so because he was quiet and always strong, but I always liked the Valiants because they were very flamboyant and ostentatious. And I, I, that's, it was, you know, it was a, a major luring product there. And sure, 500, 500 million people don't lie. I'm not bigger than boxing. Boxing doesn't need me, but I can survive without boxing, just like boxing can survive without me. Uh, would you, if this gets out of hand, would you hit somebody without having your hand bandaged or boxing hey, gloves on? Are you saying that like we're supposed to be worried about it? He can swing away all he wants, pal. He can punch me all he wants. He's beat a bunch of two-time losing boxers, all right? And I know you may not have a hell of a lot of respect for what we do, but I'll try him any day of the week. It doesn't matter, hands bandaged or not. You don't, you don't just do this stuff for the jollies, pal. You do it because you're a jock. Well, I can take care of myself very well. You guys about to think I can beat uh, Mike Tyson? That's right. Wrestler That's right. versus boxer? Hell yeah. yeah. He's Never dreaming. He's dreaming. After I get through with Shawn Michaels, I'd love to fight Mike Tyson with a pair of gloves on because I'd beat the hell out of him. If you're lucky, you may get the hell beat out of you tonight trying to get that belt because you're an uncouth imbecile. You can't get along with people. You can't function with people. You need to be nice to people. You always want to hurt somebody, want to kill somebody. Try loving somebody. You might as well set up Austin Tyson, then. End result is going to be Stone Cold Steve Austin is going to open up a can of whoop-ass, and Shawn Michaels is going to eat it one way or another. And to get that glare out of your stare, chump change, I'll walk over there and knock it off. 
Like I can't see you, boy? And uh, I choose to make an ass out of the toughest SOB. I can do that anytime I want. The first Raw of the Month opened with a special report from DX. They addressed complaints that various cable networks had levied against them. They promised to adhere to certain standards and practices, such as only using the words arse, damn and hell, and not using a list of words which were then bleeped. Hunter added that they would not use any racial or sexual slurs, and would make fewer references to their enormous genitalia. Sean then made a Monica Lewinsky joke to cap off the segment. DX then came out in front of the live crowd, dressed in Uncle Sam costumes. Red, white and balloons dropped from the rafters, with China carrying placards that read Tyson vs. Austin. Sean and Hunter hype up a potential Austin-Tyson match and got the crowd to chant, let them fight. Austin came down to the ring. He, he says that he appreciates the promotion and that he could beat the crap out of Mike Tyson, but he won the Royal Rumble, which means Sean's ass belongs to him. Austin promised to take Sean's belt, and both Sean and Austin removed their shirts and squared off before Austin left the ring, flipping China off as he did. Our opening match of the month saw Cactus, uh, Chainsaw Charlie take on Cactus Jack in a hardcore match. This was set up by a sit-down interview with Mick Foley and Tele- Terry Funk in an empty arena early in the day. They had a sloppy, wild, hardcore brawl that was everything you would expect it to be between these two. Cactus backdropped Charlie into the dumpster on the stage, put him out with a mandible claw, then jumped off the Titantron screen, hitting an elbow into the dumpster, which sent Styrofoam flying into the air. This saw the New Age Outlaws run out. They shut the dumpster's lid and tied it closed before pushing the dumpster off the stage, to which JR screamed, There's people in there. Officials and wrestlers ran out from the back to open the dumpster, in which Jack and Charlie were laying in completely unmoving. Even Vince McMahon himself came out and had an animated conversation with the Outlaws. After the break, we had an ambulance in the arena and Sonny was hysterically crying over the two men. JR says the Outlaws have taken getting over too far. Flash Funk tried to attack the Outlaws but was held back by officials, agents and even Vince McMahon. A brawl did eventually break out briefly but was quickly separated and both Charlie and Jack were eventually put on stretchers and taken away in separate ambulances. The Outlaws later cut a promo backstage and admit they may have gone too far. Road Dog says he has a family to feed and that opportunities don't come around all that often. DX interrupt and they tell them that if it wasn't Cactus Jack and Chainsaw Charlie in that dumpster it could have been the Outlaws. DX told them to suck it up and that the show must go on. Into the second hour, and we open with Billy Gunn out to take on Owen Hart. Owen, the first man to get his hands on an outlaw after the earlier angle, was very pissed and came in with high energy. Owen locked on a sharpshooter and Road Dog hit the ring for the DQ. DX came down to ringside and the outlaws threw Owen outside and DX beat him down. DX ordered the outlaws to throw Owen off the stage. They were about to, but officials ran out from the back to prevent it. We get a special report from Michael Cole at the hospital. He had no new information on the status of Chainsaw Charlie and Cactus Jack. The headbangers came out with Mosh, set to take on Mark Miro. 
After his typical pre-match routine criticising Sable, Miro introduced Goldust, who came down dressed as Marilyn Manson. Goldust provided the extraction, which gave Miro a quick opportunity to hit a low blow and win the match via roll-up. We had a Tiger Ali Singh video package, and he says he wants to become an all-time wrestling great. The Nation of Domination are out with Farouk set to take on Chains, who is accompanied by the DOA, Ahmed Johnson and Ken Shamrock. Karma accidentally grabbed Farouk's leg and the Nation got into an argument on the outside which led to Farouk being counted out. We then had a WWF Rewind which saw Kurgan putting on a claw hold on Michael Modest on Shotgun Saturday night. Bradshaw and Flash Funk defeated Jeff Jarrett and Barry Windham in a tag team match with Bradshaw pinning Jarrett after a lariat. With Flash Funk having been taken out at mid-match, the whole NWA were able to beat Bradshaw down 5-on-1 afterwards. They then recapped the dumpster angle. Michael Cole called in and said there had been a disturbance and all hell had broken loose at the hospital, with security and cops being called to the scene. Wink Collins, who you may remember as the host of the Nacho Man and Huckster videos way back in 1996, was in the ring to announce that WrestleMania had sold out in 90 seconds, but you would still be able to watch it on pay-per-view. Kane and Paul Bearer came down to the ring. Kane grabbed Wink by the throat, but Vader's music hit and he made the save. Vader challenged Kane to a match at No Way Out of Texas. Vader vowed to put Kane's fire out, grabbed a fire extinguisher and sprayed Kane with it. Our main event for the evening uh, saw Stone Cold Steve Austin take on the Road Dog. Austin jumped Billy Gunn and laid him out before taking Road Dog apart on the outside. Inside the ring, Billy Gunn ran in and got hit with a stunner and the bell rang, with Austin being declared the winner by a DQ. Austin and Road Dog brawled, but DX ran down and a 4-on-1 beating on Austin ensued. They tied Austin to the ropes and Sean trash talked him, rubbing the WWF title in his face. Cactus Jack and Chainsaw Charlie then made a triumphant return, ran in and made the save, with DX and the Outlaws bailing. Austin chased them to the back, Jack and Charlie celebrated and Austin returned to the rings to end the show by tearing up a DX shirt. The February 9th edition of WWF Raw opened with Sonny, impersonating Marilyn Monroe, singing Happy Birthday to Freddie Blassie. We then got a video package recapping what happened between DX and Austin at the end of Raw last week. Stone Cold Steve Austin then came out with a promo. He was carrying a white sack. He tells Sean you don't rub a belt in Stone Cold's face. He says he's going to get a piece of Shawn Michaels at No Way Out on Sunday, but he doesn't want to wait that long, so he told Sean to get some guts and get out to the ring. DX appeared on the Titan Tron. Sean says he knows exactly how to pull Austin's strings and that he punked Austin out last week. Sean says that Austin can give him one good reason to come out there, then he will. Austin obliges before telling Sean that he has his belt. Sean laughs this off and says he has his belt right here. He takes it out of his bag to find that his belt has been replaced with a toy belt. Austin reveals that he has the real belt in the white sack the whole time and he'll be around all night if Sean wants to try and take it back. Jeff Jarrett and Barry Windham defeated the Legion of Doom via DQ when Bradshaw hit the ring to attack Jarrett. Bradshaw chased the NWA guys to the back. DX were then seen backstage putting together a secret plan to get Sean's belt back, which was seemingly to have China go and get it. We had Pierre of the Quebecers out to take on Henry Godwin. Both guys had slot buckets of their own which were used throughout. Phineas hit Pierre with his slot bucket which allowed Henry to get the win in a quick match. China interrupted Los Bariquas' game of poker backstage. In perfect Spanish, she asked them about Steve Austin, apparently hiring them to help take him out. Brian Christopher and Pantera took on Taka Michinoku and Aguila. Christopher tried to use the brass knuckles, but Taka avoided it. Pantera then grabbed them, put them in his mask, and headbutted Taka from the top rope for the pin. 
Kane and Paul Bearer came out to the ring. Bearer says he's sick of hearing about Vader and how it's time. Bearer gave Kane a Vader clock, which Kane then set on fire. Bearer says that The Undertaker would not be in Houston with no way out because he is gone for eternity. Into the second hour, and we have Ken Shamrock and Chains taking on Farouk and The Rock. Ref distracted by a brawl between the rest of the nation and the DOA on the outside, Shamrock attempted an ankle lock on Farouk, but The Rock broke it up with a stiff chair shot to the head. This was enough for Farouk to get the pin. Shamrock snapped after the match, attacking the nation, a ref, Chains, until Skull and Apeball and Ahmed were able to restrain him. We then saw highlights from the WrestleMania 14 press conference where Vince McMahon announced that Mike Tyson would play the role of the special enforcer in somewhat of a special referee capacity for the match between Stone Cold Steve Austin and Shawn Michaels. Austin said he had been working for this for eight years and that it was not a joke to him, while Shawn reiterated that he laid down for nobody. This led to a heated confrontation between Michaels and Austin with Mike Tyson keeping them separated. China and the Los Bariquas patrolled the hallways looking for Austin. They tried the men's locker room but had no luck in their search. Steve Blackman, carrying some glow sticks, is out to take on Recon. Jackal was lowered from the ceiling behind the podium while cutting a promo throughout the match. He cut this promo as the match went on, which Blackman won with some sort of arm submission, remaining undefeated. Jackal then slapped Recon for being a failure after the match. The New Age Outlaws came out for a promo on the stage. They mocked what they did to Cactus Jack and Chainsaw Charlie last week before pushing an empty dumpster off the stage again, revealing crushed toast dummies inside dressed like Jack and Charlie. They promised whatever is left of Jack and Chainsaw Charlie, they will sweep it under the rug at No Way Out. China's and the Bariquas split up in their search for Austin, and Austin took the opportunity to lock the Bariquas out of the building. We had Goldust, again dressed as Marilyn Manson, accompanied by Luna Vachon, Mark Miro and Sable, out to take on Frasher. Frasher won a horrible match after Sable slapped Goldust and he took Frasher took advantage with a schoolboy. Luna shoves Sable after the match, but Sable snapped and slapped Luna before storming off. DX came out for a promo. Sean plugs Sunday's pay-per-view featuring DX and the Outlaws versus Austin, Owen Hart, Cactus Jack and Chainsaw Charlie. Sean says he isn't going to wait until Sunday to get his belt back. He tells Austin to get his ass out here, please. Austin came out swinging the belt, which sent DX packing, but the Outlaws run down and surrounded the ring with DX. Austin kept them at bay with a belt until he dropped it in the corner and China was able to retrieve it. We heard a chainsaw and Cactus Jack and Chainsaw Charlie cut themselves out from under the ring. Owen joined them by running in through the crowd and after the short brawl, the heels ran for their lives. And look at the reaction. This is what I find extremely most distasteful. As a matter of fact, the uh, WWF Tag Team Champions are, are here. Gentlemen, I'm, what are you thinking? I mean, are you guys just careless? I know you're not stupid. Are you that desperate to get over to, to be big stars? What are you thinking? Well, JR, you know we don't have a whole lot of opportunity in this business to get over. So maybe you do, when you see a target of opportunity, maybe you attack it. Maybe we went too far. They've got maybe families. Maybe we did, JR. They've got families. Well, I got family too, and you think I don't understand that? Hey, hey, hey. I got news to you guys. Every week we're asked to go out there and outdo ourselves. Every week we're asked to go out there and take greater risks. Push the envelope, raise the bar, get those ratings. I got news for you. That's exactly, hey, that's exactly what the Generation X does. But I know the hey. question, hey, where does it end? Where does it end? Hey, Ross, you tell us. Where does it all end? Why don't you ask your boss, Vince McMahon? Maybe the fans can tell us. If it wasn't them, it would have been you guys. 
That's right. It would have been you guys. Smart you want to fight us, go ahead, but you guys got to smarten up. Smart up. Suck it up, You're getting two. ratings. You're getting ratings, and that's what matters. And it goes that's like all this. you need to think about. Think about yourselves. Get those ratings. Push the bar. This push is the WWF. Push it higher. Push it higher. You guys better suck it up, because remember this. The show goes on. It always it goes on. Um, as I said earlier, despite there being a lot of news, you may have noticed that there wasn't too much coming from Raw or any WWF TV necessarily. But before we head into uh, No Way Out, we should discuss the month's biggest angle, which did take place on the first Raw on the mu- of the month on the 2nd of February. Um, after a promo segment featuring DX and Austin, which started the show, uh, we had the opening match, which was Shane Sword Charlie taking on Cactus Jack in a hardcore match. Uh, the match was what you'd expect with these two guys. It was a wild we- weapons field rule that culminated in Jack hitting an elbow off the screen on the stage into Charlie, who was laid out in a dumpster. Um, this then the new age, saw the New Age Outlaws uh, take advantage, run out and uh, trap both men inside the dumpster before pushing it off the stage. Um, they sold this angle as so dramatic and, and uh, such a severe... In, in the severe injuries for uh, both Charlie and Jack, um, officials, wrestlers, and even Vince McMahon himself ran out from the back, sh- sort of playing it off as a shoot. And both Charlie and Jack were taken out of the arena eventually in separate ambulances on stretchers. And Sonny was crying over bo- both of them. And we had a completely shell-shocked locker room. And aside from the promo that opened the show, um, this was the only thing that happened in the first hour of Raw. So they really filled up a good chunk of time with it and the injuries and they played it out uh, as if it was really severe and the outlaws um, sort of initially regretted their actions and admitted they may have gone too far before sort of DX made them change their minds. Then, however, uh, in the main event, of that same show, an hour later, Charlie and Jack did in fact return and come to the rescue of Stone Cold Steve Austin as DX and the Outlaws beat down on him. Uh, Eric, come to you first. They they went to grab a huge injury for, for the two men inside the dumpster, took up a lot of TV time, as I said, and then they had them both return on the same night. Uh, what did you make of the angle itself? And do you think how much did they undercut its sort of significance and its impact by having the payoff to it on the same show. Well, the angle, fair fucks to WWF for giving, I think it was six consecutive segments or five consecutive segments to this one angle. Like, they just don't do that. They just don't devote an hour or an hour and a half to uh, to, to one segment or to, or to one angle or to one match. And, and when they do, the show dramatically improves because this was really interesting this was not just the DOA versus the Truth Commission and Takamichi Noku and Brian Christopher, you know, and the, the standard fare that Raw's been putting out lately. This was different, and they tried it last month with the Tyson and Austin angle, and it worked out, and this was good too. Um, and the bump was the bump was good. I, I think they did it pretty safely. It, it seemed obvious, at least to me, that there were trash bags inside the dumpster that would fill with packing peanuts and foam and, and those kind of things, and then... The dumpster goes off and it goes through a table that's covered with wires and there's probably a crash pad or that too. And I say all that not to minimize the the impact of the bump. It looked really fucking cool. But it, it from a from if you're watching it you think, well, you know, I can kind of see how somebody could take that bump and then come back 
an hour later in the show. I wouldn't have done it though. I think they spent so long selling the injuries, the catastrophic injuries to Jack and Charlie. Sonny was bawling. Uh, heels and faces alike were coming to chastise the outlaws for their actions. You know, the, the line of kayfabe and reality was blurred. Kevin Kelly mentioned wrestler's court for crying out loud. Like this was, it, it bordered on cringeworthy if you're a smart fan like us, but I think they pulled it off pretty well. And then the end, yeah, I think the argument can be made and probably is a good argument that they should have stayed off the show and sold their injuries a little bit and sold the catastrophe that this this was. But on the other hand, this is this is the new WWF, and I don't think any of us were surprised to see Cactus Jack coming out with an IV and Terry Funk in his uh, in his uh, hospital gown and his in his blue britches, you know, sticking out to make the save. They, it just this just isn't it just isn't the AWA. It just isn't Mid South anymore, and it is kind of a cartoon comic book era now. Now with Austin and with Jack and Charlie and this absurd uh, angles that we see all the time, I wasn't I wasn't put off by it. I thought it was it bordered the line of comedy and and reality and it boosted Jack and Charlie. So I think both arguments are fine. I was okay with it. And you, you're right to point out how they went to huge lengths to sort of blur that line of reality. And you point out what uh, Kevin Kelly mentioned on commentary. JR was sitting there disgusted at the outlaws talking about how um, like they've gone too far in an attempt to get over and like just things like that. Little lines, like you say, can come off as cringy, but like it was the credit to them that I, 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 the way I saw it is like they tried so hard to play this off to the smart fan as this is this is real, this this wasn't scripted. They the out of their own hands. Vince was out there having a stern conversation with both of them, and like after like Vince's like sort of the Vince McMahon character that we've seen post Montreal and like even he was this is too far and and then having them run in like. I like it. I, I don't know if you should do both. You should either tone down the the, the smart right. smartness of it, or and have him return, or, or and have him return that same night, or you should go for it full pelt and have them do the exact same running but a week later. Like and maybe the DX and the Outlaws got the better of Austin on that night. Like I don't, I don't know. Maybe slightly minor. Um, Dan, I'll come to you. Uh, your thoughts on the uh, angle overall initially. Uh, I'm, I'm in two minds about this because, um, as you said, this is played off in terms of if you turned in just as the outlaws are celebrating and jump up, jumping up on the ramp and, and then you get, um, all the reaction afterwards with Sonny and Vince and Kevin Kelly, um, and all of that stuff. I think this is exceptional because this was, this reminded me of when the NWO first started attacking, um, the wrestlers and they had that huge angle where they laid out everyone in the backstage area and lawn darted Mysterio into the truck and then they spent a good 20 minutes dealing with the aftermath and this felt like this as well and and it was just as effective and you did get some sympathy for Charlie and Jack and you knew that these outlaws were bastards and the fact that they, but they were human because they also kind of had remorse immediately afterwards until they got their heads turned but everything that comes before and after just feels a bit clunky the bump itself, although Eric, you point rightly that this needed to be safe for Jack and Charlie, um, 
didn't look as ca- catastrophic as it needed to be for the selling of the angle. Um, and the fact that when Jack jumps into the dumpster, you see all, all the styrofoam pellets fly up, and it, you can tell that it's there's loads of padding in there that is not quite as you know dangerous a stunt as it was played out to be. But then after you do all this selling of this monumentally dangerous thing that's happened to these, these two poor men, the fact that they turn up an hour later in evening gowns is just, it, yeah, it did feel kind of like, this is stupid. And it, it did, honestly, it took me out of that moment so badly when they started, you know, running down the ramp in their hospital gear. It just felt like, it just felt too of much of a dis, much of a leap of faith and too much of a suspension of disbelief to really make it work. If they had just kind of been taken away in an ambulance even and not done a whole 20 to 30 minute kind of post post dumpster plunge angle, it would have been better. But for me, this was, this didn't, I, I went too far too quickly and then reverted back too much. Um, so yeah, although I'm sure it probably was effective for a lot of people, it didn't really work for me. I mean, you could have even done an angle in, like, played the angle out in that they didn't return to the pay per view. You could have set, set the match as it was, obviously at the time with Michaels in, involved, so DX and the Outlaws versus uh, Austin, Owen Hart, and these two, and just said, like, we don't know if they're going to be there. We don't know if they're healthy. And just have them as sort of this triumphant return at the at the pay per view, and you know Austin's team are going over at the pay per view. Um, even that would have given the match a boost and, and the pay-per-view as well, like, um, and a boost to the angle. I, I did think it took some away. Um, sticking with you, Dan, um, what do you think this angle sort of uh, represents and signifies with the when it comes to sort of the rise of the New Age Outlaws as they're now known, especially like across the last six months or so, uh, and like, how things are playing out for the duo? It's stunning, you know. Rockabilly and Jesse James were six months ago absolute bottom of the card no hopers and now they're in the main event of a pay-per-view and probably part of the most you know investment of time angle of, of the month and the fact that they have been kind of got one over on the LOD before who were on paper the biggest tag team WWF had is, is fantastic in a way I mean you have to give credit to um the Road Dog and Billy Gunn for, for going with this and, and throwing themselves into the angle itself. And they have delivered in terms of, you know, getting the crowd invested in them. I'm not sure if they delivered in the ring yet, but, you know, I think you have to give absolute credit to any wrestler who in six months has literally gone from the bottom of the card to the, almost the top in half a year with a gimmick, which is, you know, it's not exactly... Like the great, it's not like a, it's not like a cane gimmick where you're like, oh my god, this is like the most amazing gimmick in the world. Where this, you know, these two guys are just like a cocky loudmouth. That's it. But they've got it. They've done. They've done brilliantly well with it. They've got a little bit of luck with the booking, and they're now swimming. They're swimming in the sea of like really high quality stars, um, which is what the WWF needed. They needed some new talent at the top of the card because they've already lost Brett and the Bulldog. Um, you know, other guys have fallen away like Armour Johnson, so they needed to replace them. And they've done well in getting these two guys from zero to heroes. Um, Eric, your thoughts on sort of the rise of the New Age Outlaws? I think it's a breath of fresh air. Um, there, it's 
I don't, I can't remember ever seeing, I mean, they're, they're kind of new NWO adjacent in, in a sense that they're kind of outspoken, loud mouths and they come in and they just kind of do whatever they want. And they kind of came out of nowhere, um, and, and teamed up and have kind of wrecked shop on some established veterans now, LOD, Jack and Charlie, that kind of thing. But really, I think they're different from the, the, the NWO in a really positive way, which is that as Dan pointed out, these guys pulled themselves off the scrap heap. I mean, the bottom of the bottom of the barrel. And uh, Billy Gunn, I think we would all agree, is a pretty good in-ring guy. But that's about uh, all he's got going for him. He's very vanilla. He can't cut a promo. He was saddled in the smoking guns for a long time. Uh, that fizzled out pretty quick. And he's he's just been kind of lost. He's, he's, he's too talented of an in-ring guy. To be on the sidelines, but because his his look and or his not his look so much as his general blandness hasn't hasn't come together, uh, I can understand it. But then you you team him with somebody who's practically the polar opposite in in Jesse James, the road dog, the roadie, whatever you want to call him. In that he's not a great in the ring worker. He's fine. He's fundamentally sound. He's an Armstrong for crying out loud. So you know he's got at least the basics on lockdown, but he's not going to wow you in the ring. But unlike Billy Gunn, he doesn't look like a million bucks, but he can talk and he can connect with the crowd. And I think what these guys have kind of realized is, you know, you take my strengths and weaknesses and I take your strengths and weaknesses and we're a roller skate in the key. And it really seems to be, to be working out here. And I, I think sometimes it just works out time, place and, and willingness to change and modify your character. And these guys were the product of, of a void essentially in the tag team division and at the top of the roster. They happen to be friends with, you know, Shawn Michaels and Triple H and China and those folks at the top, which probably doesn't hurt their ascension. But they've also really delivered with this new, these new characters. And I, I started with the NWO comparison, and unlike Holland Nash, they did it without any hoopla or any, any uh, big splash or any momentum behind them. They've kind of just, almost like an underground band, built themselves up from nowhere and have connected with the audience in, in a way. And now they're in the second or third biggest match at WrestleMania. I think it's great, and I think it really shows that the WWF is, 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 is when it can, when it wants to be, is far more creative uh, at creating stars than WCW. And uh, with that, really, the only major angle uh, from the first two rules of the month, um, we should move straight off on to our coverage of the No Way Out of Texas pay-per-view. Uh, I don't know if either of you have uh, got the results to hand, but yeah, um, Dan? <laughs> oh, great. Dan, would you please kick us off with the results? Okay, the Headbangers defeated Mark Moe and Marilyn Manson Dust. Takamichinoku defended the WWF light heavyweight title against Pantera. The Godwins defeated the Quebecers. Jeff Jarrett retained his NWA North American heavyweight title against Bradshaw by disqualification. The team of Ken Shamrock, Ahmed Johnson and the DOA, Chains, Edgar and Skull, defeated the Nation of Domination in a War of Attrition five-man tag match. Kane defeated Vader. And Stone Cold Steve Austin, Chainsaw Charlie, Cactus Jack and Owen Hart defeated Triple H, the New Age Outlaws and Savio Vega in a non-sanctioned eight-man tag match. Uh- Dan, what did you make of this show? Um, I thought top to bottom, keywords there, this was the best three-hour in-your-house show the WWF had put on. There was nothing close to the highs that were Undertaker versus Shawn Michaels, but there was enough to keep me interested and 
um, some good high spots in, in the show, which I thought were good. There's obviously some bad stuff in there because it's a WWF undercard show. Um, but in terms of keeping me interested, I thought this was perfectly fine. You are much more positive than I am. Eric, your thoughts on this show? There wasn't a match in the first hour and a half that didn't belong anywhere but Shotgun Saturday Night. This was an awful show. <laughs> um, I mean, to summarize, I guess I, I would be firmly in Eric's camp here. I, I mean, the, the open was a seven match show, and the, the opening four, at the very least, were uh, sort of bottom rung um, and so far below pay per view quality. Um, I guess th- this is still an in your house show, I guess. Um, but I mean, you have to consider as well, like, they built it. The whole show they built up. Shawn Michaels isn't here, and we've got a surprise replacement. We don't know who it's going to be, and they—I don't know how many promo segments or little lines from the commentary commentary team, but they really hyped up this eighth man replacement for the main event. Like you thought it could be a, an ECW or even a WCW new signee or a return from injury. I, I don't know who it could have been, but they made you feel like it was going to be big. And it was Savio Vega. And even though the match itself was, was good afterwards, um, if you don't have Stone Cold Steve Austin as over as he is in, and this show in Texas and you pull that with Savio Vega as the surprise, you kill the match there. You don't win the crowd over in a, in a, in an eight man tag. Um, that was risky and, uh, they, they got away with it largely because of Austin, but I, didn't enjoy this show. Uh, we the show opens with a short video video package uh, hyping the card. Uh, before uh, Jim Ross and Jerry Lawler, our commentary team, welcomed us and over the sixteen thousand live in the crowd to the show. Uh, they hype up the eighth man who will be replacing Shawn Michaels in the main event, which has been made non-sanctioned. Anything goes, and Mark Miro and Sable come out to kick off the show. So we have Mark Miro and Goldust, who is dressed as Marilyn Manson, taking on the Headbangers. Uh, before the match could get started, Miro ordered Sable to the back. Uh, Miro and Mosh get started, and Miro takes control early with some jabs in the corner. Mosh turns the table and the clothesline Miro to outside. Thrasher tags in. He hits a clothesline from the second rope. Then Goldust tags in. And the headbangers work him over with fresher suplexing Mosh onto Goldust, but Miro breaks up the pin at two. The headbangers work Goldust over until Miro gets a blind tag and takes control of the match with a knee lift and an elbow drop. Fresher tries to come off the come off the ropes, but Goldust low bridges him and Goldust drops Fresher face first onto the steps outside. Back in the ring, Miro hammers away on the now bloody Fresher. Miro stomps away on Fresher and the crowd chant Miro suck Miro sucks. We get a loud Sable chance as Miro applies a chin lock to the isolated Thrasher. Goldust tags back in. He beats him down with punches before Thrasher is able to counter with a crossbody that gets two. Miro tags back in, chokes Thrasher with his wrist tape before hitting a sit-out powerbomb that gets two when Mosh breaks up the pin. Miro goes for the TKO, but Thrasher counters into a DDT. He makes a hot tag to Mosh, who cleans house. The headbangers hit a double flatjack on Goldust, but Miro breaks up the pin. Fresher goes up top, but Luna crotches him. And this allows Miro to hit the TKO on Mosh. 
At this time, though, Sable made her way back down the ramp and she goes after Luna. Miro ignores his chance at winning the match and he heads outside to keep Sable away from Luna and inside the ring. Thrasher switches places with Mosh. And when Miro returns, Thrasher rolls him up and gets the free count, giving the headbangers the win. Sable and Luna then go after each other after the match and they're separated by Goldust, Miro and officials from the back. Goldust drags Luna to the back as Sable and Miro argue in the ring with Sable actually shoving Miro down a huge pop from the crowd. Um, Dan, I'll come to you first. Your thoughts on this opening match? Yeah, I think the thing that you're missing out in your report, Chris, is how over Sable is. I mean, she is getting um, the third or fourth biggest pop of the night here. And I, I, have, I, have I missed something? Have I missed like this big angle on Raw where, I don't know, Sable super kicks Shawn Michaels and suddenly turns into Stone Cold Steve Sable? Because... She's never been the most, like, active or kind of real connect, like, the connector with the crowd. And suddenly she just seems to be, you know, she's adored. She's, she's literally the most, one of the most popular people on the whole entire roster. And everything that she, when she comes out, she's given the hero's welcome. When she sends to the back, Mira is booed like the asshole that he is. Um, and that carried into the match for me. I thought that the, the crowd were invested enough to keep it interesting, even though, it is involving Goldust and the Headbangers, who just seem to be checked out at this point. Um, Mero, whilst he's probably improved a lot more as a character um, and is really getting decent heel heat as a result of his treatment of Sable, I do think his wrestling has dramatically um, decreased in ability from when he was trying to be bad. I mean, the power bomb that he gave Thrasher is awful. Um, and yeah, just he's, I don't know whether his bite is, he seems to have a lot of flash muscle where there's a lot of, you know, good muscle mass there, but there's no strength. And so he really struggles to get people up for the TKO and power bombs, anything like that. And that does affect the enjoyment of the match for my side of things. This was all really about Sable. Um, the rest of the other competitors were afterthoughts. And this whole thing is, and it's the whole purpose of this match was to get Sable more over for WrestleMania. Job done. Um, I think this was a perfectly fine opener. Eric, your thoughts on the opening match? Uh, the match, uh, in my view, was a slow plotting mess that was saved by the two women involved, Luna Vachon and her crazy ass antics throughout the match. She's fantastic. And then, as Dan uh, recounted, uh, Sable's huge pop and really. Everything that happened from the time she came back out to shoving Marrow uh, in the last 90 seconds of the match in the five-minute post-match segment, everything that happened elsewhere during this first 20 minutes of the show was pointless. Um, the, the problem with this match is that it was only a vehicle to set up the Sable Pop, and yet the match ran nearly 14 minutes long. If you have this match and it's the opener or the second match and you tuck it in, to the card and you make the match seven or eight minutes long and, and you don't give the headbangers and marrow and gold dust, you know, time to develop a slow plotting rest hold match. And then the pop, I get, you want to have the crowd simmer down and get real quiet and probably even get bored. I mean, let's not be uh, naive to the fact that the people who put this match together has to know the crowd is going to be bored to tears by the time Sable came back out. But you would have been bored to tears five minutes into this match as opposed to ten minutes into this match when Sable came back out. 
So yeah, I, I understand why this match was there and what its purpose was, but I just would have cut it in half and you still would have had the same reaction and the same angle and we wouldn't have had to get nearly 15 minutes of the fucking headbangers. Uh, yeah, I completely agree with you. It didn't need to be as long as it was. Um, I don't think this match was horrible. It was it was worse than average. It was a bit of a nothing match. Pretty basic. And uh, if it wasn't for the crowd being so into Sable, I mean, this probably would have verged into horrible territory. I can't imagine you'd get a particularly lively crowd even at the start of a pay-per-view. Um, 16,000 strong in attendance, but without... The impact of Sable and, and how over she was, and as a result, the, the heat that Miro gets when he's in the ring, um, this would have been terrible, I think. Um, really, um, you're right to point out, Dan, that Miro sort of has regressed as a worker, or, or maybe he's just mentally checked out, and maybe he still can go, even though we don't really see evidence of that. But <clears throat> a large part of Sable being over has to be accredited to him, really. Um, and, and the work he does with her outside of the ring, which is maybe kind of something, an aspect of Mark Miro or Johnny B. Bad even, that he was lacking and it was the, the character side. And he was often quite maybe vanilla. But this this heel character with Sable is is a great vehicle for getting Sable as over as she is, really. Um, I guess whatever you say about this match, uh, the crowd were into it. And they they loved the angle at the end and they loved... Sable shoving Miro down. As far as the crowd were concerned in the arena, this was a, a good pay-per-view opener. As as far as a uh, person sitting watching it at home, um, I was tremendously bored um, with the action. And uh, maybe Sable isn't as over with me as she was with the crowd in Texas on this night. So uh, I, this was probably a thumbs-down opener for me. We cut backstage to Michael Cole, who is with Owen Hart. Owen says he doesn't care who the mystery partner is tonight and tells Stone Cold Steve Austin to stay out of his way and also promises that he will bust Triple H's legs. Sunny is out next. Uh, she's the guest ring announcer for the second match of the evening, which has Takamichi Noku defending his WWF light heavyweight title against Pantera. Before the match, Brian Christopher made his way down to ring to do commentary. Underway and Taka hits a spinning heel kick to start, but Pantera comes back with an arm drag which sent Taka outside. Pantera hit a somersault plancher over the top. Back inside, Pantera hits a Hurricane Rana, charges at Taka, but misses, falls to the outside. Taka hits a springboard crossbody to the floor. Back in the ring, Taka works over Pantera in the corner with forearms. Pantera fights back and hits an awesome head scissors off the top to Taka, who was standing on the apron. He follows up with a tope through the ropes to the floor on Taka. On commentary, uh, Brian Christopher has to get in the line that he loves seeing that slant eye in pain. Uh, back inside, Pantera hits a backbreaker and locks in a camel clutch. Taka fights and makes the ropes, so Pantera uh, kicks him and then locks on a surfboard hold. Taka works out of it, charges at Pantera, who backdrops him to the outside and follows up with another dive over the top rope. Back in the ring and Pantera hits a tilt-a-whirl backbreaker. They head to the top rope again and Pantera hits him with a hurricane runner. Pantera then follows with a moonsault off the top rope, which gets a two. He goes up again. This time he misses. Taka heads up top and he hits a knee drop. He sets up for the Michinoku driver, but Pantera counters into a small package, which gets two. Pantera then looks for another Hurricane Rana, but Taka counters with a sit-out powerbomb, which again gets a two. 
Taka heads up top. He hits a missile drop kick before following up with a Michinoku driver, which gets the free count and sees him retain his title. After the match, Brian Christopher wants to go in the ring and confront Taka, but Lawler prevents him from doing so. Taka takes advantage. He hits a springboard crossbody on the floor to both men. They recover and go after Taka, but he escapes with his title through the crowd. Uh, Eric, come to you first. Your thoughts on the light heavyweight title match. This is one of those matches and really one of these programs where I just have a lot of unrelated thoughts. I'm just going to spell them all out there and hopefully they make sense uh, when I'm done. So uh, the the good thing about WCW, and there aren't very many of them right now, but the good thing about WCW is they have guys who don't work that traditional North American big guy style, and they let them come in and they put them together and they let them work the match they're comfortable working. So you have Rey Mysterio Jr. doing Hurricane Ranas and Ultimo Dragon doing sit-out springboard power bombs, and and those guys can all work work together. And there are American guys like Malenko and Guerrero and Benoit who can slide in and out and work with those guys as necessary. But what the WWF is doing with Takamichi Noku, who, from what I've seen, maybe isn't as good as Ray or Dragon or Malenko, but could probably hang with those guys if given a fair opportunity. They have this guy who's five foot nine, five foot eight, you know, Japanese light heavyweight, high flying dude, working a mat based American style where he's fighting from underneath the entire match, and then hulks up at the end, hits his finishing move, and wins. So what's the point of having a light heavyweight division if they're going to work the same exact style as the main event, as the heavyweight division? So I don't see the point here. This this match could have been good. You could tell both of these guys were really restrained throughout this match. There were a couple of good spots and one amazing spot by Pantera. Um, but you can tell that these guys are working with a ball and chain uh, named Vince McMahon uh, attached to them the entire time. And I think that really hurts this match, and I think it really hurts what Taka Michinoku can do to, to, I hate to use the term, get over in front of this crowd because he's doing exactly the same thing as they do in every other match. But because these guys are so small, it doesn't look as good. Now, the other shout-out I want to give here, though, is to JR, who who tried his best to channel Mike Tanay and tell us about Pantera and tell us about Taka and tell us about the background. So, you know, fair shake to them. They're trying to get these guys over. They're trying to get the personalities over, but they're not – they're not giving them an opportunity to work how they're supposed to work. That's why the cruiserweight division in WCW works and has really locked down their undercard for two or three years now. If the WWF are trying to capture that same lightning in a bottle, it's not working, and it's not going to work as long as they keep hamstringing Taka and this assembly line of opponents they keep bringing in for him. And if they're doing all this to build to a Brian Christopher Taka Michinoku feud, you know, fair shake to Brian and, and Jerry – they were pretty funny at times. They said a couple things that made you think, ooh, maybe you don't want to say that. But they were pretty funny at times. The angle with them, the interactions between them and JR are funny. But that's not how I want to build this new division with this guy who who's just could be a star on Taka Michinoku and a, and a douchebag foil in Brian Christopher, who the crowd just wants to see get beat. And anytime he does get beat, it gets over huge. The pieces are there for a good division and a good angle with good workers and Taka and Brian Christopher and Aguila and Pantera and all these guys. But the, the, the puzzle pieces aren't coming together as I'd like to see them. So, you know, wait to see. But this match to me was disappointing because of all the things I've mentioned. Uh, Dan, your thoughts on the uh, light heavyweight title match? I thought this was really, really good. Um, sorry, Eric. 
know, I know you're um, saying that you know this you have got over the cruiserweights have got over because they're working a different style to what the Tikkurati used to, but that has its detrimental effects as well because of all the selling issues that you rightfully bring up occasionally and the fact that there's no real clear face heel dynamic and necessarily Guerrero being amazing. This match gave a really clear story of Pantera being a prick, being working over the back with some really unique offense, which looked great. He did, I, in my opinion, I thought he was doing really nice cruiserweight style offense with the top point Hurricane Rana, the kind of flip of the legs to out on the outside to flip Taco to the outside, the Topeko Hida with his using his head as a battering ram onto Taka's back on the floor. In my opinion, this was really good. Um, kind of WWF style cruiserweight, but slash light heavyweight match. Um, and if they want to make this a division which has which has clear heels, clear faces, um, then I think this was a really good like base point to go forward and and maybe bring in you know a bit more storyline into it and maybe bring a bit more talent in from Japan potentially to build this division and. On the subject of Mr. Christopher and Mr. Lawler, I thought the commentary at times was really good. Um, Unshamedly brought down by Christopher's occasionally very racist um, language. Slant Eye, Taco Twister and Burrito Buster to to describe the mood Pantera did. Um, I could do, I could do with a lot a little bit less. Um, But if they were, if their job was to make me invested in a feud between Taka and the Lawlers, then yeah, they did their job, which makes it, which actually does make the idea of putting Taka versus Aguila as the WrestleMania match instead of having Taka versus Brian Christopher or Taka versus Jerry Lawler, because Jerry Lawler hasn't had a WrestleMania match yet. I think he would quite like to get in the ring for that. Um, even more questionable, but yeah, I, I, I think I might be watching a completely different pay per view to you guys at this point because I really enjoyed this. I think we'll agree on the next match. <laughs> I have to say, I, I I do agree more with you here, Dan. Like, th- there are clear issues with the WWF light heavyweight division when contrasted to the, the cruiserweight stuff you get in WCW. Um, but both these guys worked really hard, and I, I do think that, that there was enough sort of cruiserweight, light heavyweight, little guys action in this. Like, some of the spots were good, and they pulled them off really nicely. They worked really hard, Um but when you look at how into the, the the show as a whole the crowd were at the end of the first match and that big sable pop, they did they did kind of kill the crowd like throughout this. Like the crowd fell really flat, and I I don't know what it is because I don't know if it's Taka doesn't get enough exposure on TV, and you'll see later in the month like he's in there with Barry Windham, and Windham just tears him apart for a few minutes before there's a run in and the match falls by the wayside. But like. I don't know whether it's a lack of exposure, but the the crowd didn't really have a reason to care about these guys, even though I think the action was good. Like, um, I think the action was slightly better than maybe you're giving credit for Eric, but also I'm not sure it was quite as good as, as you would say, Dan, like I probably somewhere firmly in the middle. I, there's very clear issues with the division and, I, d- I don't know what it is. I don't know what they need to do to make Taka sort of mean something more to the fans. And like, I, I, again, using the phrase, but to get over basically, like, cause I think the act- action wise, 
I think they're doing enough um, that he should. People should care more based on what they get out of these matches, and he does have good matches on pay per views. Um, I don't know what else is missing really. Kevin Kelly is backstage with uh, Cactus Jack and Chainsaw Charlie. Jack says he doesn't care who the mystery partners is, and they've come up with a number of creative ways to destroy the New Age Outlaws. Charlie says this isn't a funny situation, and the Outlaws won't be laughing tonight. With that, we head into our next match, which is the Quebecers take on the Godwins. Uh, We start off with uh, Jacques Rougeau and Phineas. After some stalling to open, Jacques hits a dropkick, and Phineas pokes in the eye. Henry tags in, but Pierre hits him from behind, and he tags in, working over Henry's arm. Henry reverses and grabs an armbar. Pierre fights out, hits a drop toe hold, and tags in Jack. They stop Henry down in the corner, and he comes, but he comes back with a double clothesline. The Quebecers work over Jack with a variety of moves, tagging in and out frequently. Jack tries to fight back, but Phineas hits a spine buster for two. Uh, Henry then tags in. And as, as a side note, uh, I just thought it was a, uh, a, a line worth mentioning here. Um, I don't, I don't know. I can't even remember the context from my notes. I haven't jotted it down, but Lawler said the line on, con- on, on, uh, commentary. Don't get me started on Bill Clinton. Where is the country needs him? I, I, I can't for the life of me remember the context, but I thought it was worth knowing. Uh, Jack kicks Henry in the face, but isn't able to get the tag. Henry eventually locks in a chin lock on Jack who is able to break out of it with a jawbreaker. He goes for a pile driver, but Henry is able to count up with a backdrop. Henry tags Phineas back in and he stomps on Rojo. Uh, Lawler has a great line here um, when he says that the uh, Godwins both had IQ tests and they came back negative. So it's a slightly... Uh, oh, look, very hit and miss I'm, I'm sort of getting from my notes on commentary here from, from the King. Uh, Jack hits a reverse elbow, and I say this very, very, very lightly. He gets the hot tag to Pierre. Uh, Pierre hits a clothesline and a lead drop on Phineas and follows. Jack tags back in and he hits Phineas with a pile driver. They hit the Quebec crush on Henry, but but they hit the Quebec crush, but Henry then makes the save again. Jack sends Henry outside, goes up top and hits a crossbody on him to the floor. Pierre looks for an O'Connor roll but on Phineas, but Henry hits him with a cheap shot from the apron, which allows Phineas to pick up the free count. Uh, after the match, the Goodwins then laid out the Quebecers with their slot buckets. Um, Dan, your thoughts on this third match? And I do think, Eric, you were right. We may have some sort of uniformity in our opinion for this one. Absolutely. This was five stars, wasn't it, boys? All right, Dale. <laughs> 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 oh, this is rubbish. This is rubbish, wasn't it? Uh, I think the the fact that when the match started, the hard camera was pretty full of fans, and by the end of it, there were quite a few empty seats. Kind of showed you how much the crowd cared about this match. Uh, the Godwins have been in the Fed for about two years now, and I still don't think they've had a good match. But you know, they are there, so you can put them up against the five young babyface tag team. On the way, it's the Quebecers, who have been hated heels for their entire run in the WWF. This is going to be makes total sense. So, yeah, just heel-on-heel matches, which have got no crowd investment, no most boring offense you could ever think of to actually get the crowd invested, uh, and then just a nonsensical finish, a really, like, 
weak finish. Like, you know, allow it from behind makes no sense to actually finish a match, in my opinion. Um, and yeah, just the, the ten whole minutes of this, which it felt at least half, it felt like at least half an hour just watching this crap. Um, and yeah, I think this is a con- early contender for match, worst match of the year. Um, so I, I think I like to think that well, I'm back on the side of negativity now for you now, guys. Don't worry. Eric, uh, your thoughts on this match? This match was 11 minutes long. If you haven't watched the show yet, there's a little button with a couple arrows on it. Go ahead and use that. Fuck this match. <laughs> Moving on. Uh, <laughs> Dave Meltzer had a really good line in his report on in the Observer about this match, and he said that it is going to wind up being the most famous match from the show uh, because they're going to end up having Supreme Court's fights in in California over whether forcing criminals to watch this match over and over again would constitute cruel and unusual punishment. And uh, it's a pretty good analogy because this match was criminally criminally boring. Um, I have no idea why this needed the length it needed. And I actually have no idea why it needed to be on the show. Cut entirely. You cut 20 minutes from the show. You're still going over two hours comfortably. This was nothing but a detriment to the show. A detriment to the crowd for the rest of the night, um, and a detriment to the federation. That's pretty harsh, but this match was bad. Uh, we cut backstage and we have Doc Hendricks. Uh, he's with the New Age Outlaws, who say that they don't know who their partner is. Uh, Road Dog says they want to be included in the decision-making process and that they demand respect. With that, it's time for the NWA North American Championship match with Jeff Jarrett defending against Bradshaw. Uh, Jarrett is, of course, accompanied by Jim Cornette, Barry Windham, and the Rock and Roll Express. Bradshaw hits the ring, swinging a ball rope around, and the NWA guys bail to avoid it. Officials force everyone except Cornette to the back as he's the only one with a manager's license. Bradshaw stalked around the uh, the people stalked the expelled down the ramp as they left and Jarrett tried to sneak attack him from behind but Bradshaw saw him come in and hammers away inside the ring Bradshaw hits some stiff shots and follows up with a hip toss he hits a big boot and sends Jarrett to the outside with a clothesline he grabs Cornette and Jarrett and rams their heads together Bradshaw then goes after Cornette but Jarrett takes advantage of this and attacks him from behind to take control of the match Jarrett is reversed into a corner, but Bradshaw runs in and gets hit with an elbow, and Jarrett follows up with a second rope dropkick. Cornette then chokes Bradshaw on the ropes, with Jeff distracting the referee. Bradshaw gets a two with an inside cradle, and he blocks a sunset flip attempt. He charges again at Jarrett in the corner, but this time eats a boot to the face. Jarrett tries to jump on Bradshaw in the ropes, but misses and crotches himself. Cornette then hits Bradshaw in the knee with the racket. Jarrett works over the same knee. He goes for the figure four, but Bradshaw kicks him away. Jarrett ducks a lariat and hits a DDT. Jarrett then goes up top, but Bradshaw crotches him. He tries a superplex, but Jarrett shoves him off and goes for a crossbody from the top. Bradshaw catches him and hits a fallaway slam. Hits a right hands and follows with a powerbomb. Cornette then gets on the apron for the distraction, but Bradshaw slingshots him into the ring. He sends Cornette into Jarrett, but then Jarrett gets a hold of the tennis racket, which he smashes with smashes Bradshaw with for the DQ. 
somehow then Bradshaw got a hold of the racket. He takes out Jarrett with it. The Rock and Roll Express run down. They also get hit with a racket. Bradshaw slams Cornette, goes for a lariat, but Wyndham trips him up, and the NWA guys beat him down four on one. The Legion of Doom then run in and make the save. Uh, Eric, I'll come to you first. What are your thoughts on this historic first ever NWA title match on a WWF pay-per-view? So historic, in fact, that this was the only championship defended on this entire pay-per-view card. So they clearly wanted to make it seem unique and different, and so they carved this whole card out just to feature the one championship match, the NWA North American Heavyweight title. Um, this NWA storyline is a Yokozuna-sized albatross that's squarely on the shoulders of everybody involved with it. Um <laughs> Christ, I can't believe I'm going to do this. I think the WWF needs a guy like Jeff Jarrett in that you need a guy who can work the middle of the card, who can be the chicken shit heel, who can take a beating, a credible beating from guys who they're trying to work up like Bradshaw. I think Bradshaw and Jeff Jarrett could have had a, a, a pretty decent, you know, killer face versus chicken shit heel where the the heel sells for half the match and then the chicken shit fa- uh, or the, and then the chicken shit heel and his chicken shit manager take advantage and do old, uh, you know, territorial, uh, cheating throughout the match to keep the big guy down and then have your smudge finish, have everything else or have the heel go over by nefarious means or whatever. So, so Bradshaw and Jarrett, I think could have a good match. I think there is a spot for Jeff Jarrett based on the, the lack of depth in the WWF right now. And there's obviously a spot for Bradshaw, somebody who I think is really starting to find his way and hopefully can break this Stan Hansen clone mold a little bit, find some uniqueness, because I think there is room for an ass-kicking face. That said, the execution of this match, the NWA storyline, Jeff Jarrett's, you know, Aztec warrior uniform, the involvement of the Rock and Roll Express and No Cell OD, just... Get 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 all the trim all that fat. Let Bradshaw and Jeff Jarrett, two relatively you know young guys with with some degree of upside for the WWF right now as it's comprised. Let them do some work. Let Cornette manage Jarrett fine. This NWA stuff, and we'll unfortunately talk more about it later on in the show. Um, it's just killing everything associated with any of these guys. So again, kind of like this card has been uh, throughout. Maybe some good ideas peppered in. Maybe the right pieces are there, but they haven't figured out how to put it together. Dan, your thoughts on this match? I think as a meat and potatoes kind of match and storyline, this is textbook fine. Jeff Jarrett is fine as a wrestler. Bradshaw is a, is fine as a face horse. The story of gets the chicken shit leader of a stable who is meant to be um, you know, a good mid-card act against the young, up-and-coming hometown babyface against, in an against-the-odds match is fine. Have the manager, you know, have, by nefarious means, distract the face and hit him with a tennis racket, hit him with a felon object to allow the, the heel to work over the big legs of a big man is fine. Have the and the finish. The young Texan comes up. Get you know Texan uh, has a big rally and nearly beats the champion. But by nefarious means of the outside interference and disqualification, 
the chicken shit heel retains his belt is fine. And this is what the match is. It's fine. Nothing more and nothing less. Just fine. The thing is, Dan, I agree with everything you just said. But to me, this match was just hideous. Like, (laughs) absolute death. It's like you've taken eight ingredients of fine, added them all together in a big bowl, and at the end produced a load of garbage. Like, I don't know what happened, because I do agree with you. Like, when you break it down like that, and take the context away, and maybe some of the worst parts of the NWA storyline then this should be fine. And it has the potential to be better than that. When you like Jarrett is, is, is fine as a mid car wrestler and Bradshaw is fine as a, as a sort of prospect baby face, badass. Like, I don't know, but I thought this was death, like really boring, nothing happening. Um, just a waste of my time on a pay-per-view card. And I didn't enjoy it. Like I, but I, I couldn't I couldn't put my finger on why. Maybe it was the Rock and Roll Express. Maybe, maybe. We can blame them. <clears throat> uh, Michael Cole was backstage. He's with Triple H and China. Helmsley says that everyone wants to be a part of DX and the world has been beating down on the door with wrestlers who want to be a part of it. Helmsley says there's absolutely nobody on this planet who can match Shawn Michaels, so he's decided that it will be a four-on-three handicap match. Cole says if that's the case, the WWF officials will likely appoint the fourth man on the team for him, and Triple H says he doesn't care. They've really spent a lot of time on this show hyping up this eighth man. Doc Hendricks is with the nation. He asks the leader a question, and The Rock takes control and tries to answer Farouk grabs the mic and then he tells everyone that he is the leader and everyone needs to fall in with him. While Farouk is telling this, the rock is posing to the camera and pointing to himself and he stole this whole segment. So good. Next up, we have the war of attrition match between Ahmed Johnson, DOA, Ken Shamrock and the Nation of Domination. Uh, It hasn't really been explained um, what a war of attrition match is. But we are underway, and uh, we have Adilo and Skull starting us off. After a striking exchange, Skull wicks Adilo into the corner, and he goes for 10 punches. Brown breaks out. He hits a reverse atomic drop. Skull hits a spinning heel kick and tags in Shamrock. Shamrock hits a back elbow before letting Karma tag tag in. Chains then tags in, and he and Karma then hammer away before Chains hits a few elbow drops. But Karma rakes the eyes and tags in Mark Henry. Henry demands Ahmed Johnson and Chains obliges tagging him in. Johnson and Henry slug it out until Johnson hits a huge slam, so Henry backs away and tags out. D'Lo works over Ahmed, who counters with a sit-out gourdbuster. D'Lo goes up top and hits a frog splash. Farouk tags in, he hits Ahmed with... but Sorry, Farouk tags in, but Ahmed hits a spine buster. Ahmed looks for the Pole River plunge, but the rock breaks it up. April tags in. Uh, he gets a two with a power slam on Farouk. Shamrock then tags in, but Farouk cuts him off by going low. He tags in the rock. He hits a DDT on Shamrock, which gets away on Shamrock in the corner before tagging in Karma, who misses a charge in the corner, which allows Eight Ball to tag back in. Karma then regains control of the match, hitting a spinning heel kick, which gets a two. 
Skull and D'Lo tag in. D'Lo hits a snapmare and a second rope elbow for two when eight ball breaks up the pin. Rocky tags in. He hits a slam and a standing elbow, which hits a one count when Chance breaks it. Rocky then tags Farouk, who continues to work over Skull until he gets caught with a face plant. Uh, Rock tags back in, but Skull clotheslines him. Eight ball inadvertently distracts the left ref, which allows the Rock to go low on Skull. Mark Henry then tags back into the match and hits a shoulder block before tagging in Karma. Karma flows up with an elbow drop for a two count and locks on a chin lock. Skull manages to fight out, but he goes to the wrong corner, so he gets cut off, and this time D'Lo tags in. He hits a backbreaker and heads up top. He tries a moonsault, but misses. Both Skull and D'Lo get the tags to Shamrock and The Rock, respectively, with Shamrock cleaning house and all ten men enter the ring to brawl. The ring is then cleared, apart from Shamrock on the rock. Uh, Shamrock and the rock, and Shamrock hits a belly to belly, locks on the ankle lock, and the rock submits, which gets a huge pop for the crowd. After the match, the rock and Farouk argue, and the rock shoves him. The rest of the nation have to hold Farouk back, and the rock leaves the ring. He looks as if he's going to leave the arena entirely, walking down the ramp, but he collects himself, goes back into the ring, and the nation pose to show that they are still, in fact, united. Dan, I'll come with you first. Thoughts on that war of attrition? I wasn't a fan of this, if I'm honest. Um, You've got three guys here who are quite interesting to watch wrestle. Obviously Ken Shamrock and obviously Rocky Maivir. These two guys are future main event stars. But also D'Lo Brown, who I think is kind of slowly but surely becoming the workhorse of the nation. And some of the stuff he was doing in in this match actually was quite impressive with the kind of almost full length of the ring frog splash in particular and a picture perfect moonsault which if it ever hits would be quite devastating however these guys weren't in the match for a long time they were in there for brief spurts and when you take these guys out of the ring you end up with another gang wars match and god knows we've we've been tortured into watching these matches the last six months of WWF programming and this was nothing interesting in this match at all, but when those other seven men were in the ring, especially Mark Henry, who I think is up there with Kurgan as one of the worst wrestlers WWF has right now. He has been around for 18 months now, and he's still green as grass. So yeah, just when you've got that many people in the ring taking up too much time, it just it just really loses your interest, and the brief moments of Shamrock and Rock and Brady Brown were in the ring did pique my interest, but they weren't in there for long enough to really make me like recommend this match at all. And the other wider point about putting this match on the card along with the eight-man tag match later on the show, it meant that you do get shit like the Godwins and the, and the Quebecers match going on because I, I do have to question the wisdom of having 18 of your... like main roster tied up in two matches on a on a three-hour card because it does mean that you're going to have to scrape the bottom of the barrel to get more matches on the card and in my opinion this didn't deliver to warrant that inclusion um so yeah i, I think this was a double flop for me eric your thoughts on the war of attrition is nobody bothered that this was by the definition not a war of attrition um so because JR didn't understand what attrition means and King didn't understand what attrition means, I'm going to clear it up for you and explain why this match 
was was stupid. Attrition is defined as the act or process of gradually, there's your word there, gradually reducing the strength or effectiveness of someone or something through sustained attack or pressure. That to me sounds like a Survivor Series elimination style match where you gradually reduce the strength or effectiveness of your of the other team through sustained pressure and ultimately prevail. This was a one-fall no-DQ tag brawl featuring Ahmed Johnson and Mark Henry. There was no attrition here. Anyway. Um, <laughs> why Why anybody but The Rock and Ken Shamrock and D'Lo Brown and maybe Farouk? Just because we know Farouk can put on a good psychological match. He's not the best worker, but he, you know... Fruks at least got some seasoning on him. Why anybody but those four guys came anywhere near this match, which was the third from the top on this card, I think is just insulting. The DOA are in a, are in a match which is in the, the second half of a show. The DOA are in a match featuring the Intercontinental Champion. That's insulting. Dan said it best. Dan said it absolutely best. This match and the main event are the reason why this show seems so flat and so thin. But even that, you look at the guys in this match, and there's only two, three, four of them that even belong on the card anyway. So when you take those four guys and you bloat them with guys like Mark Henry and Chains and Skull and Eight Ball, horrible workers with with no heat and no ability to work, it really hampers what somebody like Farouk and The Rock and Shamrock and D'Lo Brown could do in some some combination. So again, it's becoming kind of the theme of the show, and I didn't even realize it when I was watching it, but some good puzzle pieces there, but just an absolute failure to put it together in any type of palatable way. So if not, thank God for the rock. Otherwise this, this, this show and everything before the main event would have been just dreadful in my opinion. Well, I will say, I agree with both of you entirely on your opinions on the match and your assessment of each of the workers involved in it. What I will say is though, as a vehicle to build toward WrestleMania and the, the shamrock and, rock match that we are inevitably getting and sort of as well as building and the continuation of the split that we see coming within the nation um and it has to be said just how brilliant the rock was in that promo before the match um absolutely stealing segment without saying a word um as a vehicle to get to that match and and this program does move it along and, and make me want to see those two wrestle at WrestleMania more so than I did before the match. The finish is a large part of that, obviously, with Shamrock picking up the win as he did. Um, it was a horrible, horrible match, but as a vehicle building towards WrestleMania, which I guess is what the ultimate goal is, I, I, I think it was probably a plus, but as a viewer watching this show, um, a huge thumbs down. We have Stone Cold Steve Austin backstage with Michael Cole. Um, Austin says he doesn't care who the mystery partner is either, and that he says that it's fun to beat someone's ass anywhere, anywhere in the world, but if you beat someone's ass in Texas, then you've done something. We then get a video package hyping up the two men in our next match, which is Vader taking on Kane. Straight into the match, Kane opens proceedings with some right hands, but Vader hits some of his own into a clothesline from Kane is able to take Vader down. Vader rolls outside and Kane follows. They brawl on the floor. Kane slams Vader's face off the steel steps a few times. Back inside, Vader hammers Kane before dumping him over the top rope to the outside. Kane snaps Vader's neck off the top rope. 
and heads up top before hitting a flying clothesline. Uh, Kane then chokes Vader in the corner before hitting a suplex and following it with an elbow drop. Vader tries to punch his way back into the match, but Kane cuts him off with punches of his own to the midsection. He then chokes Vader in the corner again. He is a scoop slam before snapping Vader's neck off the ropes again. Vader makes a brief comeback, clotheslining Kane over the top to the floor, but back inside, Kane takes control of the match once again with a DDT. Kane whips Vader into the corner, charges in, but gets hit with a lariat. Vader hits a splash into the corner, but Kane looks to lock on a choke slam. Vader is able to prevent it by going low and knocks Kane down with a clothesline. Vader then hits a splash, he heads to the top rope. Vader does hit the moonsault, but Kane no-sells it and sits straight up. Vader then clotheslines Kane to the outside again, and they brawl before Kane again sends him into the steps. Vader grabs a fire extinguisher from under the ring, and he sprays Kane with it. Vader follows Kane back inside, and he hits a jackknife powerbomb before knocking Bearer off the apron. Kane again sits up, no-selling the powerbomb, and hits a chokeslam. Vader actually does pop straight back up from the chokeslam, but Kane hits him with a tombstone pile driver to pick up the win. After the match, Kane grabs a wrench and he drills Vader with it. Uh, Medics come out to check on him as Kane leaves, and Vader is taken to the back on a stretcher by about ten officials. Eric, I'll come to you first. Your thoughts on this sort of clash of the big men? I, I think they, I think they had about the best match that that Vader and Kane could have. Um, this wasn't, you know, this wasn't a work rate classic. This isn't going to get five stars in the Observer by any means. But you know, for guys like myself and and our our overlord Bob Amber who like these big big guy on big guy matches, this was okay. And you know, Vader's been devalued and and he he's lost a step and he's gained weight and. He's going away for surgery, which hence the post-match angle. So Vader's not the Vader we grew to love five years ago, but he made Kane look good. Kane actually was pretty generous to Vader in this match. Vader's offense looked strong to a point. Kane sold for Vader. They they did the best they can to make this look like a credible threat to Kane, and so so good good for them. Um, but yeah, good match for what it was, um, and I think. Of all the matches on the card, this is the the match that kind of that that, that accomplished all of its goals that it needed to accomplish, uh, along with the main event. But uh, if you wanted to make Kane look like a killer, God, that that post match angle with that wrench and it just looks so violent. So it was one of those examples again, like the dumpster spot where, and, and this time they did it right, where you're going to have a, a, a an angle that blends reality and, and fiction and look super violent and Vader sold it and Vader sold it hard and that it was just a really violent encounter. It really made you think, geez, Kane's not screwing around. And this is a guy who we've already seen set somebody on fire at least once. So um, I think the angle was good. I think the match was as good as it could be. Um, probably, at least for me, the, the match on the card that accomplished all of its goals or at least obviously accomplished all of its goals. Dan, your thoughts on this match? Interestingly, I think I have been such a huge fan, and probably a mark actually, for the whole Kane character and how they've built up this killing machine that I work myself too much into looking forward to his matches. 
And so I'm expecting to be entertained as much as I have been on Raw whenever Kane wrestles. And that shouldn't be my mindset because he is still relatively green as a worker as Glenn Jacobs. And he's playing a character who is basically the carbon copy of what The Undertaker was in the first two years he was with the company, which is slow, remorselessly walking down his opponents, mainly doing punches and kicks with a few bits of offense thrown in there um, to make it interesting. And that generally doesn't lead to good matches. I'm not a huge big man, half-spite guy. Um, so I did find the first two-thirds of this match quite dull. Um, until the big bomb started coming in with, with Vader's clotheslines and splashes, um, it did lose my attention quite a bit. But as Derek said, in terms of what you wanted to do coming out, you know, when you set out the game plan going into this match, which is to make Kane look like a monster, but make Vader look like a credible threat and give that little bit of edge of doubt and get that little bit of um, vulnerability um, to lead into the match at WrestleMania for Kane. Job done. I think they did a really good job here. Um, and the wrench, that if that was a real wrench, he would have killed Vader. Um the way he threw that shot. And it just makes that extra bit of violence and this, you know, horror movie style villain that Kane is right now for the WWF. Um, and yet he just continues to be the best thing on television, just in my opinion, anyway, um, the Kane character. So did it entertain me as a match? Probably not overall, but as a overall character development angle. Yeah. I think it was, was, this was a thumbs up. Yeah, I'd agree with that. An average to, to decent enough match, but with a fantastic story. And we know Vader has been a monster, and like to look at him, he's a monster, but Kane's an invincible monster, and it, to such an extent, he makes Vader look human. Um, he gave Vader a fair amount in this match. Like We, we don't see people get the better of Kane ever. Um, I don't think we ever have, really, um, since his debut back in October. Um, and Vader got the better of him in the angle on Raw, um, very slightly. But it, like, although Kane was no selling a lot of moves and sitting straight up after them, he did give Vader a lot. And like, considering Vader is injured and he's going away for a while, um, maybe he didn't need to give him quite so much. But even even if that was a flaw with this match, the way that Kane would regularly no-sell that offense and just sit straight up. That that builds him up as something else. Like you can hit him with these moves, and it ain't going to do a thing. So again, even if that was a detriment to the match, it's a positive to the longer-term booking. So I, I would also agree a thumbs up here for me. Uh, with that, we get a video package for our main event, and uh, in which we still don't find out the identity of the mystery eighth man. We move straight into our main event, which is a non-sanctioned anything-goes match between Triple H, Road Dog, Billy Gunn, and a mystery partner taking on Stone Cold Steve Austin, Owen Hart, Cactus Jack, and Chainsaw Charlie. So, we had Shawn Michaels initially scheduled for this match. He had to withdraw due to injury. Throughout the show, as I've Noted, a long time has been dedicated to hyping up who his replacement would be. Uh, the New Age outla- Outlaws head to the ring um, and they introduce Hunter Hans Helsley. Uh, Hunter did tell us earlier in the show that he wouldn't be selecting a replacement for this match and we were told that one would be appointed for him. So the reveal of the mystery partner 
is Savio Vega comes down to the ring to the most apathetic groaning boos you could ever hear. Um, and I wish that Bob was on this show, really, just to talk about this moment. I wish we could dial him in right now to talk about the moment Savio Vega was revealed as Shawn Michaels' replacement. They hyped it up so much, and they gave us Savio. Owen Hart is out first for the opposition. He's followed by Chainsaw Charlie and Cactus Jack, bringing a dumpster full of weapons down to the ring with them. Out comes Stone Cold Steve Austin in his home state to wake the crowd up after that disappointing reveal Savio. I said it earlier um, when talking about the show overall, but they are so lucky that Austin is as over as he is after that Savio reveal. Otherwise, that would have completely killed this match um, and killed the crowd But before we'd even had the introduction of the, the, the second team. We are underway in our main event. Austin jumps Billy Gunn and hits a Fez press followed by some rights. He hits an atomic drop and follows up with a shot with a trash can lid. He steps up for the stunner, but Gunn is able to avoid it. Austin cleans house with the trash can lid. He hits Hunter with a clothesline, for, for, which gets a two count. It goes without saying, but this crowd absolutely loves him some Stone Cold Steve Austin. All men pair off and brawl on the outside until Jack nails Road Dog with a steel tray. Uh, Jack sets up a table in the corner of the ring and Charlie runs Road Dog into it. Jack, Charlie and Owen, then triple team Billy Gunn uh, with Owen power slamming Billy through the table before locking in a sharpshooter. Triple H breaks it up with a clothesline. Savio and Billy Gunn double team Austin on the outside, but he makes a comeback hitting a, a stiff clothesline on Billy Gunn. Hunter then power bombs Owen on the inside. So much in this match was happening at the same time, and the camera we just really sort of had the hard camera shot throughout. It didn't focus in on one bit of action at a time and sort of the guys would lower their work rate on the outside as big moves were happening in the ring. That didn't happen. We just sort of had the hard camera shot, which had all eight guys in it, but all in different places, all doing different things. So in rather, it's almost, I would have rather missed out on things, but had full attention on what was happening in the ring. Um, that may have been better because it was so much, so hard to pay attention to really, any aspect of it because you were trying to take in too much at once. Hunter tosses Owen to the outside uh, while Savio and Charlie brawl in the ring. Uh, he hits Charlie five or six times over the head with a trash can before getting a two count with a DDT and Owen breaks up the pin. Charlie then randomly throws the trash can high into the air that tripped the referee over. That uh, made me laugh at the very least. Uh, Owen then hits Helmsley with a spine buster and locks in a sharpshooter, shooter, but Road Dog breaks it up with a chair shot. Road Dog hits Charlie with a low blow and then power bombs him through two set-up chairs in the middle of the ring. We finally seem to have gotten some order and everyone has returned to their corners, apart from Billy Gunn and Charlie who are the legal men in the ring. Gunn hits a pile driver onto a trash can lid but gets a two when Jack breaks up the pin. Triple H tags in and he stumps away on Charlie before Savio tags in for a while and hits some right hands. Road Dog tags Jack in. He hits a back suplex, but Cactus Jack makes the save again. Charlie fights back with some headbutts as Billy Gunn charges across the ring. Uh, <laughs> this is brilliant, actually. Billy Gunn charges across the ring. He's not the legal man. He's just sort of preventing uh, Charlie from fighting back and potentially getting a tag. And Austin on the apron has a trash can. Um, he just launches it across the ring straight into Billy as he charges across the ring. It hits him square in the face. It's an absolutely brilliant spot. Savio tags in, he looks on a front face lock, 
Owen gets a tag, but the referee is distracted by Road Dog, so he forces Owen to back out. Uh, Hunter nails Charlie with a chair a few times, so he rolls to the outside, landing right on his head on, on the floor. Back inside, Charlie manages to get the tag to J- Cactus Jack, who cleans house with punches. He hammers away on Road Dog in the corner and sets a piece of broken table on him before whipping Billy Gunn into Road Dog. He hits a double arm DVT, but that only gets a two when Savio breaks it up. Owen comes in with a missile drop kick on Savio, and Jack grabs a uh, hits a uh, double mandible claw on both of the outlaws, which Triple H runs in and breaks up with a low blow. Cactus Jack and Billy Gunn head outside, with Billy hitting a DDT on the floor before nailing him with a steel steps. Back inside, Hunter tags in. He hits a suplex for two. Billy and Savio start wrapping Cactus Jack in barbed wire. The heels hold up a chair in the corner, and Savio runs Jack into it before nailing Jack with that chair to the head. Uh, Gun and Road Dog come in, and Road Dog holds Jack up for a chair shot, but Jack ducks and Billy nails Road Dog. Jack gets the very hot tag to Stone Cold Steve Austin, who cleans house with wild right hands to all of the hills. He launches Savio over the top, he stomps on Triple H in the, in the corner and pounds on Billy Gunn. Uh, Austin then ducks a clothesline attempt from Road Dog before hitting a stunner, which is enough for the free count, picking up the win for his team. Austin pops up. He immediately nails Billy Gunn with the stunner uh, before sending Helmsley flying off the apron. China enters the ring. She confronts a celebrating Austin before shoving him twice. The crowd is going absolutely wild for this. Austin goes to leave. He gets halfway out the ropes when China pats him on the back and flips him off. Austin gets back in the ring, kicks China in the stomach and drops her with the stunner. And the crowd absolutely lose their shit. The show goes off the air with Stone Cold Steve Austin celebrating. Dan, I'll uh, come to you uh, first. Your thoughts initially on the match as, and then also the uh, post-match angle with Austin and China. Um, I thought the match was a fun ECW-style brawl, which occasionally was hard to follow. But in terms of just a pure entertainment value, I think it did a good enough job in my opinion um, Austin of, I think everything that Austin did was, was treated as gold by the crowd and when you've got someone who is over as Austin that's absolutely fine and the, the Fed are rightfully going to use that to the to the benefit and I think that's got to be one of the hot, hottest tags I've ever seen if I'm being honest with you he just had so much energy um, in you know when he comes to punching people in the face and as, as uh, Jim Ross said it was unbelievable he can't be controlled and it was just like a force of nature just pushing its way through the DX and the Outlaws which was you know and it was incredible to watch um and there were good and there were good spots like, throughout the match anyway I mean the barbed wire wrapping around Cactus was something I'd never thought I would see in the the WWF in 1998 um the stuff with the powerbomb for the chairs was good um the only guy I didn't think was got much of a rub was Owen Hart, but this, this isn't really his sort of match to kind of do anything with, so I can excuse that. And there obviously was the huge logic hole in the fact that this was unsanctioned and no disqualification, but Earl Hebner's there going, oh no, you can't, you have to get out of the ring because you're not a legal man, which does make things a little bit confusing, but I can forgive that in the grand scheme of things because it's just, you know, I think it's ingrained in, in, in the referee's head, that mindset that he has to do that. So 
it sometimes it's difficult to switch it off. So yeah, but yeah. So it was, it was a fun main event. Nothing more than that. No kind of um, real high stakes involved in it. It was just a big plunder fest to get the crowd happy. And uh, Austin selling of China was the perfect go home moment, considering how much she's managed to get away with over the course of a year, and to finally pay that off with your company's biggest star in his home state is perfectly good timing in my opinion. So yeah, fine, good. Good, solid main event. Eric, your thoughts on the main event and the uh, closing angle of the show? I think I can defend the Savio Vega choice, first of all. Um, I'm no, you can't. You can't. You can't. No, I'm, I'm going to sell you. Listen, listen to this. So uh, DX has been closely associated with the New Age Outlaws and Los Bariquas. Also, Savio Vega... Who was, who was Steve Austin's first real feud when he came into the Fed? Savio Vega. Third, bending the lines between kayfabe and non-kayfabe, Savio Vega, the, a.k.a. Juan Rivera, is a noted hardcore wrestler from back in Puerto Rico. <laughs> Making this match an unsanctioned hardcore match, there are a few guys in the locker room that I'd rather have on my team than TNT. Fair enough. That was awful, man. What a what a, <laughs> what a let you, There was a valiant effort, to be fair. Like sound I was say, points. Yeah, I, was, what I, was sold, I was sold there Eric, for a, a good five seconds. Could you imagine if Stone Cold Steve Austin wasn't on this card? How just how big of a WCW Hogwild style train wreck this show would have been. And and, and thank goodness for him. There's the, even more so than in the Rocky Maivia match. This was a one man match, even though there was a ton of dudes and, and, and China involved with it. And if it wasn't for Austin and that constant 20-minute build to his hot tag and his coming into rec shop, it's like they used to do with Hogan. You can bore a crowd to tears for two and a half hours, but if they get their five minutes of Hogan, if they give their five minutes of Austin, all is forgiven. And typically, I've been critical of male and female violence on the show pretty consistently. But even I have to admit that post-match angle with Austin and China, and Austin really trying hard not to stun her. I mean, he wanted to leave. He wanted her to leave, and China just kept goading him. It just kept goading him, and bam. I think that's the only thing that could have possibly saved the show from being an all-time disaster was that huge pop at the end and Austin's popularity. So... You know, the guys did a pretty good job in this match. The Savio Vega thing can't be overcome. Um, this match was doomed from the start because of that. But all things together, they did a pretty good job. And the ending, se- the ending segment did make sense and, and probably did send the crowd home happy and, and, and gave them a little bit of amnesia for what had happened previously. I'd also like to make the one also um, defense of including Savio Vega is that if you're having a surprise entrant for a face team, you can pretty much bring anybody back and it's a win-win because it's a surprise return and that naturally makes the crowd pop. But if it's a heel team and you got to bring back Sid, for example, as a guy that was is available, the last time you brought back Sid as a surprise opponent, he, he tore the roof off the arena. And you can't have that as a heel team. So in a weird meta way... What better way to want to have the faces beat up the heels than to bring up the most uninspiring wrestler you could? No, I, you're, you're right. You are right. In that case, don't have six, seven, eight promos and stuff leading up to it, video packages. Just say, like, once you could start the broadcast by saying, like, 
China and Hunter have cut a deal with the Bariquas, and they'll have one of them in their their corner. Like announce that on the pay per view because you've already got their money. Like you don't need to spend the pay per view building up the reveal for it to be Savio. Like you can justify the Savio, but you don't need to hype it as they did. They they built themselves up for the letdown. They could open the show and say Savio Vega's in because we saw it on Raw later, or it might have even been earlier in the month where, where China just spoke perfect Spanish and cut a deal with the Bariquas to try and find Stone Cold Steve Austin. Um, and uh, they, the, like they, they, you're right, they have been working with them, but you, if that's the case, you don't you don't spend two hours hyping it up. Um, my thoughts on this match really. Really, uh, in minutes, uh, I, I don't really think it it needed to go that long, which is an odd thing to say. But it didn't have the caliber of worker, or not the caliber of worker, but necessarily it didn't have the. It wasn't laid out in a way to to make use of any of the good workers it had in it. Um, I felt the ending felt really rushed to me. They they could have got more out of Austin after the hot tag. I think the hot tag to the pinfall was about twenty seconds. Um. We should have probably got a bit more of Austin Rain Wild. He could have even hit Savio, Hunter, and then Billy Gunn with a stunner and then turned his attention and dropped Road Dog with one for the pin and laid out all four of them. I mean, you could have done that. Um, it just felt a little bit rushed to me. But that being said, like that, that 20 seconds of Austin at the end of the match and the closing angle with China, which is unbelievable heat. The crowd just going wild. Um, and you're right with you when you talk about uh, sending the crowd home happy and looking back on the show in a fond way because that was almost enough to make you look back fondly on your viewing experience and be fooled that you'd enjoyed the last two and a half hours, which was absolutely not a case. Um, the match was a bit of a mess, um, really, um, but it's kind of what you expect and what you want when you have a non-sanctioned brawl. Um, like you don't you don't want a structured, laid-out match that that goes against the sti- stipulation, really. They are so lucky Austin's as over as he is because you, replacing Shawn Michaels with the lowest rung of mid-carder you could possibly imagine, that would have killed any other crowd and any other match completely dead. Um, overall, I guess, this keeps the Stone Cold Steve Austin train rolling on the road to WrestleMania. Um and the end of this show was a perfect way to make the most of the situation that they find themselves in with Shawn Michaels' injury or and keep things rolling with momentum behind Austin as we had towards his WWF Championship match, fingers crossed, at WrestleMania. Um, so, overall, this was a huge positive to close out the show. That will bring to a close our review of the No Way Out of Texas pay-per-view. Uh, Dan, I'll come to you first with your overall thoughts on this show and a score rating out of 10. Yeah, again, I, I feel like I've watched a different show to you guys because um, there's a lot of vitriol, particularly coming from Eric's side of things for this. And I thought it was fine. I, yeah, it wasn't like, I'm not going to call this as like a really good show, but I don't think there's anything that is like, like terrible apart from the Goblins and Quebecers match. Uh, I thought there were two... Pretty good matches on the card in Pantera, Pantera versus Taka in the main event. And um, in particular, Kane and Vader, I thought, did enough good stuff to warrant a good rating. So I'm going to give this a, a 5 out of 10. 
Eric, your thoughts on this show and a score rating out of 10? To be clear, this was not a Starcade 91 or a King of the Ring 95 show. There were some good things on it. The post-match angle with Marrow and Sable was good, and it set up things later on in the month in arguably Mark Marrow's best Raw segment ever, probably. Uh, the post-match angle with Vader and Kane was vicious, and it set Kane up, and that was good. And then, in the theme of the night, the post-match angle with Austin and China was good and sent the crowd home happy and gave us all a little bit of amnesia as to what was otherwise a really, really bad show. And, and frankly, the first hour and a half of this show was as bad as those other cards because nothing memorable happened except for the Sable Marrow thing. And frankly, the matches themselves weren't even bad enough to be memorable for being bad. They were just slow and boring and exposed the WWF's lack of depth right now in its middle to under card. So... That being said, the main event was passable. The Kane-Vader match was passable. Um, but when you look back at this, if you can watch Raw and see a highlight of the Austin Stunner on China, if you can watch Raw and hear them talk about Marrow and Sable, this show, Bell to Bell, was completely skippable. Completely skippable. And so on that basis alone, and for all the reasons we've talked about before, I'm going to give what half of what Dan gave. I'm going to say two and a half out of ten. This is a, a, a B-level show, really. It had a, a C-level card, and it had, like, E-level action for the most part. Um, it generally did well from a storytelling perspective, and with a, a notable exception being the, the Quebecers and the uh, the Godwins, um, it got most of its booking and storytelling right, which, when you're heading towards WrestleMania and you're a month away, is generally a lot more important than the in-ring quality. Um, that being said, that doesn't excuse how boring I found this show. Um, you absolutely do not need to watch it. You, the Sable stuff will probably be shown on Raw, but really, if you want to take in the best bits of the show, you watch the stuff after the opening match with Sable and Miro, uh, Mark Miro. Uh, you watch the rock in the background of the promo with the nation, and you watch the last 20 seconds of the main event and the uh, closing angle of the show, and you're taking in all the good that this has to offer. Um, I'm going to go with 4 out of 10. This was a below-average show in my book. I, I didn't enjoy watching it for two and a half hours. Um, and uh, But, again, it has to be noted that they got most of the storyline aspects right, and with the attention that the WWF have on them at the moment, um, with Tyson and they are heading towards WrestleMania. Storytelling's key, and you could have had not with this card, obviously, but in a parallel universe, you could have an outstanding in-ring action. But if they get the booking wrong and get the finishes wrong, and they contradict storylines, that might may have been more of a detriment to them next month than having a bad show with bad in-ring action that gets the booking right. So, I can't be too harsh on it, which is why I've gone with a four. So, 
The post-pay-per-view edition of Raw starts with JR announcing that there are rumours that DX will be launching a lawsuit against Stone Cold Steve Austin after his actions towards China at the end of No Way Out of Texas. Our opening match is the Legion of Doom take on the Quebecers in tag team action. Midway through the match, the New Age Outlaws appeared on the ramp with a dumpster. They tossed Hawk into the dumpster while the Quebecers worked over Animal. Animal eventually noticed that the Outlaws had, in fact, trapped Hawk in the dumpster and chased them to the back with a chair, which gave the Quebecers a count-out victory. We get a China video package highlighting the impact she has made since her debut in the WWF, which leads into a replay of her actions at the end of the pay-per-view last night, which of course led to Stone Cold Steve Austin stunning her. Ken Shamrock heads to the ring to take on Sniper, with the Jackal joining the commentary team. Shamrock gets the win when Sniper taps to the ankle lock, before Sloopix in the hell out of recon. After the match, Jackal confronts Sniper before turning his back on him. Sniper shoves the Jackal and leaves. Jerry the King Lawler interviews Mark Miro and Sable in the ring. Miro says Sable knows her place and that she belongs to him. Someone then brings a bouquet of flowers down to the ring for Sable, and Miro demands to know who sent them. Sable says it's nice to know that someone is thinking about her for a change and leaves. We have a Jim Cornette pre-tape promo about the reaction he has received for bringing in real professional wrestlers such as the NWA. Cornette says he is ashamed of and disgusted by the fans and is going to teach them what real wrestling is all about. NWA referee Tommy Young has been appointed for the next match, which sees the NWA World Tag Team Champions, the Rock and Roll Express, defending their titles against the Headbangers. The Headbangers hit a stage dive on Ricky Morton and have victory, victory in their grasp, but Mosh throws Gibson over the top rope. So Tommy Young stops his pinfall count and declares that the Rock and Roll Express have won the match by over the top rope disqualification. The war zone starts with Stone Cold Steve Austin making his way out to the ring for an interview with JR. Ross asks Austin why he stunned China. Austin says that when you step in the ring, your ass belongs to Stone Cold. He says China was lucky Austin was in such a good mood. Austin also says he knows Sean is at home training for WrestleMania 14, but regardless, Austin will whip his ass. Austin says that Mike Tyson had better not stick his nose in Stone Cold's business. Owen Hart defends his WWF European Championship against NWA North American Champion Jeff Jarrett, with only Hart's title on the line. Owen locks Jarrett in a sharpshooter, but Cornette hit the ring, so Owen breaks the hold and puts it on Cornette instead. The referee calls to the bell, with Owen picking up the win via DQ. Jarrett tries to hit Hart with a tennis racket from behind, but Owen catches him and Jarrett retreats. As we are in Dallas, we get a Michael P.S. Hayes video package. Jock Hendricks then comes out and is introduced as formerly Michael P.S. Hayes. Paul Bearer and Kane interrupt him. Kane lays him out with a chokeslam and follows up with a tombstone pile driver. Bearer tells the camera that Freebird has been grounded. Sonny comes out to be guest ring announcer for a tag team match between WWF light heavyweight champion Attacker Michinoku and Aguila, taking on the team of Parata, Morgan and Brian Christopher. Much to the dismay of Lawler on commentary, Attacker picks up for the, the win for his team with a Michinoku driver on Morgan. The Nation of Domination are out as Farouk is scheduled to take on Steve Blackman. Farouk tries to use a portrait of The Rock as a weapon, but The Rock prevented this leading to the two men arguing. This distraction allowed Blackman to roll up Farouk for the win. After the match, Mark Henry held up the portrait for Farouk to punch through and stomp on. Our main event of the evening saw Cactus Jack and Chainsaw Charlie take on the team of Mark, Miro and Goldust, who came out dressed as himself for a change. Miro came out without Sable, but Luna was ringside. Late in the match, Sable came down to the ring with the flowers she received earlier in the night. Luna then destroyed these, fl- these flowers and Sable tried to go after her, but Miro jumped outside and held her back. Cactus Jack took advantage of the destruction in the ring, smashing Goldust with a chair shot to the head was enough for him to pick up the win. The show went off the air with Luna and Sable being held apart. 
The final Raw of the month opened with the New Age Outlaws defending their WWF Tag Team Championships against the Legion of Doom. The crowd were pretty hot for this match. The finish saw the LOD hit Road Dog with the Doomsday device, but the referee focused on getting Hawk out of the ring rather than counting the pin. Billy Gunn then knocked Hawk to the floor before hitting Animal with a title belt, which allowed Road Dog to pick up the pinfall. After the match, Hawk and Animal brawled in the ring until agents and referees came out to separate them. Next up, we have NWA North American champion Jeff Jarrett taking on Ken Shamrock in a non-title match. Shamrock inadvertently laid out the referee and Cornette tried to take advantage by hitting Shamrock with the tennis racket, but he accidentally knocked out Jeff Jarrett with it before bailing. Shamrock locked on an ankle lock on the unconscious Jeff Jarrett and the referee called for the bell. After the match, Jarrett tells Michael Cole that it's time for him and Cornette to go their separate ways. Jerry the King Lawler is backstage trying to get an update on the LOD and all says that as far as he's concerned he no longer has a brother and the brawling continues. We get a six man tag team match with the DOA taking on Sniper, Recon and Kurgan. Skull and 8-Ball manage to slam Kurgan at one point but he ends up picking up the win with the Paralyzer. Kurgan then lays out Sniper with a Paralyzer after the match. We get a video message from Shawn Michaels' home in San Antonio. Shawn says that at the pay-per-view, Austin attacked a woman from behind and DX has an open and shut case against him. Hunter says that if all hell breaking loose is your idea of must-see TV, then be sure to tune in next week as they'll be setting the Nielsen books on fire. Shawn guarantees he'll be defending the title at WrestleMania and Hunter certifies that WrestleMania will be stamped X-rated. Sonny is out to introduce the next match between Taka Michinoku and Barry Windham, who is accompanied by the NWA. This is obviously not a WWF Light Heavyweight title match. Windham hits a lariat, but the lights go out of two, and out comes Kane. The NWA bail, leaving Taka to take a chokeslam and a tombstone from Kane. Bearer then challenges Stone Cold Steve Austin to meet Kane in the ring next week. We enter the Raw Zone with Michael Cole backstage talking to the New Age Outlaws. They laugh at the situation with the Legion of Doom before attempting to leave in their rental car. Chainsaw Charlie and Cactus Jack then run in and ambush the car with a chainsaw and a baseball bat respectively. Jack smashes the windscreen but the Outlaws are managed to drive away and escape. We get a pre-tape promo of Goldust impersonating his father Dusty Rhodes before Goldust comes down to the ring in full polka dot gear. He takes on Bradshaw but lost a quick match after a stiff lariat. Kevin Kelly tries to talk to Hulk backstage, but Hulk doesn't say a word and leaves the arena. Steve Blackman is in the ring for his non-title match with WWF Intercontinental Champion The Rock, who makes his way to the ring accompanied by the Nation of Domination. Farouk distracted the referee when Farouk had the match won after a DDT. D'Lo tried to throw Blackman's nunchucks into the ring for The Rock to use, but Blackman got a hold of them and laid out The Rock for the win. D'Lo blames Farouk, saying he told him to do it. The Rock demands that Farouk apologise. Farouk does no such thing and leaves with Karma, D'Lo and Mark Henry. Kevin Kelly is backstage with Luna. She says she's waiting for Sable to make her entrance and plans on turning her face into an Andy Warhol original. The Rock and Roll Express are out to defend their NWA tag team titles against the Headbangers. Commissioner Slaughter comes out and switches the referee from NWA official Tommy Young to Earl Hebner. Cornette and commentary is furious about the switch. Cornette then gets involved in the match, drilling Thrasher with the tennis racket, but he lands on top of Ricky Morton for the pinfall, meaning the Headbangers are the new NWA Tag Team Champions. Lawler announces that Pete Rose will be a part of WrestleMania before we get a Stone Cold Steve Austin video package. Our main event of the final Raw of the month is a WWF European Championship match with Owen Hart defending against Mark Miro. Miro sent Sable to the back before the match got started. Sable did make her way back out though, which distracted Miro and Owen rolled him up for a two count. Miro then got himself disqualified when he shoved the referee down to the mat. Luna came down 
and went after Sable with the woman being kept apart by Mark Miro, Goldust and officials as the show went off the air. Uh, so we move on with uh, some post pay per view TV discussion. There's two rules to round off the month. Um, the final two rules of the month were probably about as the most uneventful you could get. Um, but as Eric alluded to uh, during the Jeff Jarrett and Bradshaw uh, match, there is sort of one final talking point we're going to have to round off the month. Um, Eric. Um, coming off the pay-per-view, we had a mixed bag for the guys involved in the revival of the NWA uh, on the final row of the month. Um, he, Jeff Jarrett, after losing to Ken Shamrock, he declared that it was time for him and Jim Cornette to go their separate ways. Barry Windham was beating down Taka Michinoku until he was interrupted by Kane and uh, bailed. And then finally, the Rock and Roll Express, they lost their NWA tag team titles to none other than the Headbangers inadvertently, thanks to Jim Cornette's involvement. Um, what do you make of how this NWA revival angle has played out and sort of how it was tied up? Like, I don't know where they're going to go next month and what will happen with the Rock and Roll Express and Cornette and where, it's, where Jeff Jarrett's going to go. But it seems to have sort of come to a conclusion quite quickly here. Yeah, and, and, and if you read... If you read the sheets, there was talk of an NWA match at WrestleMania, but that seems to have been replaced by the Marrow-Sable mixed tag with, with Luna and Goldust. So the storyline which has been given, I mean, when did Cornette start doing his little promos on Ted Turner and the New York Post back in October, November, December of 97? So now we're five, six months away from that, and that carried into bringing back Jeff Jarrett and, and longing for a return to the territorial system and, and the NWA way of doing things and Cornette and Jarrett coming together and then just bringing all these guys that just look so bad and you expose them as being, in the case of the Rock and Roll Express, small and, and, and out of shape and past their prime and Ricky Morton still got the mullet, bless his heart. And Barry Windham, who looks like he's two cases of beer away from driving a truck as opposed to working a match. And you just expose these guys and you, you make it a clown show. And it's too bad because Cornette, we know, is one of the better managers, if not the best manager in the game, when when he has something to work with. And I have to believe Jim Cornette has spearheaded this thing from behind the scenes because we know he has a hand in creative and and you have a guy like Jeff Jarrett who we've criticized to to the tilt, but we all would agree that he can, he is fine, as Dan said, and he can be a stalwart in the mid card, and he can work a program. But you bring in all these guys, and and it doesn't get over. And Cornette even cut a promo on Raw criticizing the WWF fans for not appreciating what this NWA thing has been. And then either on the same episode of Raw or the next week, Jarrett breaks up with Cornette. The, the Rock and Roll Express job to the headbangers. Oh, they even did a, a match on, on Raw this month where Tommy Young, NWA official, disqualified the headbangers, which set up the rematch for <laughs> throwing Rock and Roll Express over the top rope, which means the WWF enforces that rule a hell of a lot more than WCW has in the last few years. So it's just been kind of almost sad and insulting to watch from a perspective of, 
the Rock and Roll Express were once a great tag team, and they were super over, and they, they used to headline shows, and Barry Windham, too, was a former champion, and it should have had a better career, but now it's just it's just ugly, and I don't know that this is going to resolve. This might just be it. We don't know, um, but if it has petered out, it certainly petered out fast, and it really, I, I would suspect that even, even though they've probably seen a bump in pay, the Rock and Roll Express have, have Tarnish your legacy by by participating in this angle, and, and Jeff Jarrett again, just another just another shitty angle for Jarrett to be a part of and to and to be saddled with or to saddle the fans with. It's just it's bad altogether, and I don't know. I hope it's over. I hope they give Jarrett something better to do. I hope Cornette has something better to do, and I hope the Rock and Roll Express can just kind of go away and we can rekindle our memories for them. So just, just bad. And I hope it's done. Uh, Dan, uh, what do you make of the whole uh, NWA storyline and how it seems to have filtered out as we come to the end of February? Well, as I'm a new fan comparatively to guys like Eric and Rory on the show. So I knew nothing or very little about the NWA legacy. I knew Obviously, a flare of steamboat and all the big angles and feuds, but not of the lineage. Like, so for me, I guess this angle was to, for a new fan, to explain what the NWA is, explain what their traditions are, and to make them feel like an alternative or a threat to the way that the WWF feel like um, wrestling should be done. And they've done nothing like that. Um, and if they have tried to do that, the way they have shown me what the NWA is, is a bunch of guys who are out of shape, past their prime, and have no star power. Um, you know, I, it's easy to criticise Jeff Jarrett because we don't have to death on the show, but the fact that the leader of the NWA is a guy who, you know, was a country and western singer um, two years ago, if you only watched WDF programming, and the man who got kicked out of the horseman for being rubbish... Um, if you if you watch WCW programming and, and the way of both shows, it just kind of died a death from that instant, really. And the fact that Jeff Jarrett kind of immediately took a pick a tried to pick a fight with Austin in shoot, and then got buried immediately because of Austin. You, you know you can't touch a guy who's basically going to be the face of the company in a month's time. You know it was it was almost doomed from the start really. And the fact that they've not put on any good matches. Um, you know, Jim Cornette is is kind of feeling a bit corny now. The way his his speech style is, it just it just feels old school, and I mean it in a detrimental way because I think NWA wanted to be a way to get either older fans back into the product as a way as an alternative to to, to to WCW, but it just it has felt like it has shown how antiquated this whole faction has been, and it's just, it's not up to date with the current wrestling tastes. The NWA in comparison to something like the NWO, the New Age Outlaws, um, Austin, even someone like the Rocky, Rocky Maivia in the nation just feels so out of place and they've done nothing to change that in the three or four months they've been in force here. So if this is either a complete bin of the angle itself or a kind of real major surgery is going to happen in the next month or so. I don't know. But if you want to ask my opinion, I would say just bin it because it has been a huge flop. If you wanted to, you know, if Jeff Jarrett came over to WWF from WCW 
with the view that this angle was going to make him pushed up to the main event. And it's just not worked out that way at all. For his re- for that's his own fault. That's Cornet potentially a Cornet thing because of the way he's booked this potentially, um, and the way that Deborah Defer presented them as a whole faction. It's just been a complete failure from start to finish, really. Yeah, I, I'm much the same as you, Dan. I, I, I I'm not a great um, wrestling historian. I haven't seen a lot of the NWA outside those classic matches and the big angles that everyone knows about. Um, this as a revival, I like, I think you're giving them far too much credit in a way in that, like you pointed towards like the, the NWA representing sort of an alternative to how the WWF does things. And like, it's sort of like a takeover of the WWF from inside, like a quasi like NWO style, the way NWO take took over and runs aspects of WCW and like I don't even know like if that would have been any in any of the, their thinking because in execution if that's what they were trying then they never got in the universe of anything like that like I don't know what they were trying to do like based off how they booked angles and how they booked all the guys involved and it it didn't make any sense at all and it was always bad like and like no nothing that they did was a positive on any tv or any pay-per-view um and quite frankly the angle um and the storyline doesn't deserve a spot on the card and i i firmly agree with you like it would be a positive for the show and, and for the company <laughs> to just bin this off as quickly as possible and forget about it. And as you said, Eric, Eric, like try and fans can remember the Rock and Roll Express as they should remem- be remembered rather than have memories of them stemming from this hideous angle. Um, uh, one one final thing that I would say is that I did quite enjoy <laughs> the over-the-top rope DQ on Raw. Oh, it was, it was it was gorgeous. It was brilliant. Just because, like, it was an NWA title match, and I said, "Oh well, it's NWA rules," and it's like, I that execution for me was was wonderful. Um, so yeah, that that was a positive, but the whole storyline has been pretty much garbage. Um, from its inception on WWF programming. Um, with that, I think. That brings us to a close um, for February of 1998 on the WWF side of things. Um, I'd like to thank, firstly, Eric uh, for joining me uh, and partaking back in our trip back to February 1998. Yeah, uh, happy to be here. and Good job, Chris and, and Dan. I think we had a, a pretty uh, you know, debatable show, especially for a, or a show that involved a lot of debate for a show that I thought was definitely going to be a consensus a poor outing. So, so Dan, thanks for keeping me on my toes on this one. Uh, Eric, you can be found on Twitter. Yep, at Modern Day Lawyer, and more importantly, uh, patreon.com uh, slash wrestling20yrs. <laughs> <laughs> very good, very good. And uh, Dan, thank you Eric, very much Eric, for joining you're... us on the show. Sorry, go on, Nick. Power positivity that I am. <laughs> Dan, uh, you can be found on Twitter. Uh, Daniel 886. 
Lovely stuff. Um, yeah, this is uh, volume two for the month of February 1998. Uh, three volumes for you this month. Volume one, WCW, looking at Super Brawl. And volume three, rounded it off with your ECW coverage, looking at Cyber Slam. Um, yeah, I have been your host, Chris White. Uh, you can check me out on Twitter if you wish to do so, at chriswhite14. Um, so thank you very much for listening, and thank you very much to Eric and Dan for joining me. And until next time, goodbye.